Give me a go, no go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was gonna say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. Let's make film history. We are go for launch. Welcome back, everybody, to the Almost Sideways podcast. We're so glad that you are joining us. This is episode 89. Uh, we're coming to you uh, recording August 23rd, 2020. It is almost 3.30 Pacific time. I'm your host, Terry Plucknett. Joining me are Todd Plucknett and Zach Saltz. Uh, Zach, how badly do the league and the refs want the Lakers to beat the Blazers? Uh, well, given the, I think, what, 41 to 16 free throw advantage for the Lakers um, last night. Uh, yeah, I, I think the league is pretty uncomfortable with the notion of LeBron ever losing in a series. I miss the, I miss the days when LeBron choked, you know? It seems like such a long time ago. But um, you know what? It doesn't really matter, Terry, because I have an announcement for this podcast, which is that I'm going to die tomorrow. And I'm dying tomorrow, so... <laughs> There's a lot of things I haven't done. Just you wait. Just you wait. Like e editing Just... this podcast. Well, I'm dying tomorrow, so I can't do it. You should do it, Todd. Yeah, yeah. Um, why, why, what is it? Why, why do you write like you're running out of time, Zach? <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, we're quoting well, that. Doesn't he Todd say, no idea what's you know, on. if you live to 20, isn't that a long time where Alexander Hamilton's from? Something like that? Okay. Yeah. I imagine death so much it feels more like a memory. <laughs> See, You'll Hamilton never be satisfied. and she dies tomorrow are related in some way. Uh, we'll, we'll get conspiracy theory. We're going to have to get back to this. Yeah, conspiracy theory. All right. Uh, Todd, I'll, uh, Dustin Johnson's up nine with two holes to play. Is that a safe lead? Uh, I mean, I, I think so. I mean, I, I can't imagine <laughs> him shooting ten over on in two holes. I mean, he is the last guy to he's the last guy on the course so <laughs> it it's uh and it's not sunday at pebble beach during the u.s open either so yeah yeah he i mean yeah he's blown some leads in his day but i mean he he is capable of just like going off like he did this week he, he can't he can't accidentally ground his club in a bunker like he did at that pga 10 years ago right or yeah or he blew a lead in at uh chambers bay too didn't he yeah, he did. He did. And he had like an eight-footer to go to a playoff and missed it. That's how Spieth won his U.S. Open. All right. Uh, Zach, what are you drinking? Uh, out of Free State Brewery in LFK, um, a place where the virus is spreading pretty quickly thanks to those wonderful college students who don't wear masks. I have the Copperhead Pale Ale um, beer. I'm going to need another one in about 25 minutes. That, that's that's quite specific. <laughs> All right, Todd, what are you drinking? Uh, it's just a vodka martini. I figured I'd, I'd go light today, so it's pretty good. He's only, he's only drinking vodka today. Only so vodka, you know? Yeah. Keep it simple. So so I went and, uh, and uh, got a growler filled. Shout out to Ridgewalker Brewery in, uh, in Forest Grove. I walked in and I'm I I was filling a growler and and they were like what are you doing today and I said oh I'm I'm recording a podcast I need a beer to drink during it and like oh we were talking about the movie we're gonna talk about the she dies tomorrow which we're gonna talk about and I was telling them about it a little bit and so yeah shout out to Ridgewalker uh, today I have 
their Treewise Imperial IPA, 9.5 ABV. So uh, I think I emptied their keg, actually, because it was really low. And yeah, and I'm looking on their app right now, and it's at 0%. But I got enough to fill my, my growler, so I'm happy. It's good. It's good beer. I always get good beer from them, so. They just released their first beer in a can. Everything else, everything has always been on tap, but they just released, like, their first beer you can buy in a can, their Haze Walker Hazy IPA, so. It's pretty good. Pretty good. Nice. I'm excited. Yeah. All right, well, uh, well, let's get into this. We have a featured review we're going to be talking about. We have a deep dive of a movie that came out. 20 years ago but first uh todd what have you been watching this week uh so my nicholas cage movie for the week was the 2011 joel schumacher directed movie trespass uh where he plays a diamond dealer with this big ass house and his wife's played by nicole kidman and they, uh, there are these group of people that break into the house and they may but, but and they act like they know more than they should about the house uh and it's sort of like a fight for survival and try to stay ahead of the captors it's got an awesome cast, like Ben Mendelsohn and like Bunchy from Ray Donovan and Rachel from Ozark are, are the are the invaders and uh, I mean Nick Cage is, is like does his thing and I, I read that he actually wanted to like mid shooting wanted to switch roles from the the from the homeowner to the main captor which is just kind of ridiculous to think about but that's where Nick Cage is at in his career right now. Uh, the movie is not good; it kind of gets worse and worse, but but it looks really cool and uh, it's I think it was Schumacher is like second to last movie so i mean it's worth seeing that it's it's streaming everywhere it's like a one and a half star movie but uh it's worth seeing for nicholas cage very nice very nice all right yeah i feel like that's uh that's one that i frequently see on the discount bargain shelf at walmart i've seen that uh that cover quite a bit yeah back in the pre-covid well, it, era yeah it's it's free basically everywhere so i don't <laughs> it's not hard to find if, you, if you you're know. interested <laughs> It feels like a movie that they should pay audiences to actually have to watch. I, I don't even remember this getting released. I mean, Schumacher in and Nicolas Cage. It said it made ten million. I don't either. On a on a thirty eight million dollar budget. So Todd, I think I love the idea of the Nicolas Cage um, retro review hour, but I think for proper context, you need to like place Trespass. Like, is it somewhere in between? You know, like it's better than Vampire's Kiss, but not quite as good as The Family Man, or like somewhere in between like Eight Millimeter and Red Rock West. Like, where where would you put it in the spectrum of of Cage, the Cage universe? Oh man, I would say it's like. Not as bad as Zandali, but it's like not quite to the level of yeah, you know, like, I would don't know, like w- uh, honeymoon in Vegas. It's somewhere between those two. <laughs> okay, hey, I mean that after you watch you your last one, you're gonna have to like rank the entire the entirety of his the enti- entire uh, yeah all yeah nine, the cageology all ninety-eight of his movies. <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay. Have Nicolas Cage and Robert De Niro ever done a movie together? <laughs> I don't think oh, that'd so. That'd be interesting. Wow. If not, I have a feeling, seeing what they're doing, I have a feeling it's going to happen in the next couple years. I also have a feeling oh, that Todd guys, would see that You guys see, see the movie. war with grandpas actually getting released? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> One of my most anticipated of like three years ago. <laughs> uh, Alright, I'm going next. Uh, so my anniversary movie for this week, uh, is 10 years old this year. It was nominated for three Oscars, one, two. 
It won costume design and art direction, was nominated for visual effects. It is Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland, uh, which I probably should have watched two weeks ago to kind of go with the theme when we were watching uh, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, but we can keep talking Tim Burton a little bit here. Uh, it is, it's one of those where I feel like it's almost like the perfect marriage of, of like a classic story and a crazy like genre filmmaker, like Tim Burton recreating Alice in Wonderland is like perfect. I mean, it, it, cause Alice in Wonderland is just so off the wall bonkers acid trip, which is kind of everything Tim Burton does. So it really works well. Uh, you have this insane cast, and the the heart of it all is Mia Wasikowska, who does an amazing job. This is the same year she did uh, The Kids Are All Right, which was nominated for Best Picture, would, and these two films really kind of put her on the map. But you got this insane cast. You got Johnny Depp as Mad Hatter, Helena Bonham Carter as the Red Queen, Anne Hathaway as the White Queen. For some reason, Crispin Glover's in here. And then the voice acting from people like Michael Sheen, Stephen Fry, Alan Rickman, Timothy Spall, uh, Christopher Lee. Uh, I mean, you've got a, just an insane cast. I really enjoyed it. I mean, it, it's a fun movie. It's kind of like all Tim Burton movies, kind of safe but scary at the same time. Like, family movie, but your kids might get nightmares from it. Um, I'm giving it three stars. It, it was a fun watch. It was interesting. And, uh, and yeah, I'm still kind of waiting after watching this. I'm like, what, why didn't Mia Wasikowska become something? Because she's actually pretty good in this. So, uh, and she's good and kids are all right as well. So three star movie for me. So it sounds like there's yeah. a little bit of a missed opportunity because, uh, Andy Serkis could have been a voice actor in Alice in Wonderland and that would have been another unexpected role in his career, right? <laughs> yes i i would say all right speaking to something else that was movie news this week we got the first trailer for the batman with matt reeves directing and robert pattinson as bruce wayne and i think the most unexpected move by andy circus is the fact that he's alfred in this movie i mean that's gonna be awesome <laughs> and there's some ridiculous makeup on colin farrell so he can play he can play penguin like all over twitter was is that colin farrell or richard kind because that's what he looks like trying to play the penguin buzzer beater by donchick <laughs> so what don luca donchick just hit a buzzer beater to win in overtime from like 28 feet <laughs> <laughs> shit Thank you for interrupting our uh, our movie podcast for your uh, sports update, Tom. Yeah, I, I was just going to say, Terry, <laughs> that um, I still don't think that's quite as unexpected as Andy Serkis in uh, the Planet of the Apes sequel, right? Or or The Hobbit or whatever yeah. whatever uh, Adam said. That That's more unexpected. <laughs> Butler, I think anyone could Very do. Very much yeah. so. Yeah, yeah. All right, Zach, what did you watch this week? Okay, well, you know what? It's the end of the summer. Um, you know, the sun is out. Before we know, it's going to get cold out. Uh, you know, so we got to cancel. I mean, not that anyone's been able to go to the beach, but we got to cancel the hypothetical beach trips. Before we, we uh, close up shop, we got to get a few, uh, at least one French sex summer romp in there. And Netflix had a great release of that this week, a movie called um, An Easy Girl, Une Fille Facile is the French name. And it is directed by... 
by Rebecca Zlotkowski. I've never seen any one of her films before. And you know what? This is totally in the tradition of like Eric Romare um, in the 1970s and 80s. We got a couple of young girls and their cousins, and they're on the French Riviera. I believe they're in Cannes. And uh, you know what? Um, the, the main character's name is uh, Naima, and she's a 16-year-old girl who's just had her birthday. And her cousin is named Sophia, and she is this glamorous, almost like Sophia Loren, Bridget Bardot type, who uh, definitely has a boob job, and she is just, you know what, out there, man. And so they pick up um, these guys, these rich guys on a yacht, and uh, one of the rich guys is played by Benoit Magimel, who I knew I recognized him from somewhere. He is uh, Isabelle Huppert's lover in The Piano Teacher, if you've ever watched that movie, which is the, you know, Michael Haneke, Isabelle Huppert, S- uh, B- BDSM, um, you know, movie from the early 2000s. Anyway... Um, I'm, I'm kind of sounding flippant with this movie. I actually think it's a pretty good movie. Um, it, I would say it's very much like a, a, a Romero film. There's a lot of dialogue in it. There's quite a bit of skin in this movie. It's very R-rated. But it actually has a nice soul to it. Um, the, the, the younger character, the, the Naima character played by Mina Farid. Uh, first of all, both of these characters are North African. And there's definitely a racial component to the movie, which I think is pretty interesting. But, but the younger girl kind of watches as her cousin goes off and, you know, bees this yeah, very, you know, outlandish outrageous character and she's just sort of sitting on the side a little bit and then later in the movie she develops this relationship with this older man but it's not a sexual relationship Uh, she tries to seduce him a little bit but he's like no you have more decency and self-worth than that and what the movie kind of shows is um, that kind of relationship is a lot healthier than an unhealthy sexual escapade which is what the cousin character has with the rich playboy so I actually think it's a pretty good movie it's a solid three-star movie if you're looking for that fun summertime adventure that in only the way that French directors can make um, an easy girl is is a good pick and right now it's available on Netflix well done Zach well done we all just need that trip to the French Riviera at some point. Uh, With the discussion yep. of the novels of Marguerite Dura, like that scene too. Yeah, but that, that's how you know the movie's French. They talk about their favorite books. <laughs> Either, I mean, that only happens in, in French films or uh, a link letter before movie. That's true. I mean, those are really the only times. Yes, that that's a, gr- that's a great call. Books would... Yeah, <laughs> that's a great call. <laughs> Uh, all right well that's what we've been watching now let's get to our featured review uh this movie came out a couple weeks ago on vod and we decided to to catch it this week and talk about it it is called she dies tomorrow you expecting someone hello jane you okay i just have this feeling i'm going to die tomorrow but how do you know I just know. Okay, so you don't know. Happy birthday to you. Which Zach has already mentioned, and Zach, it was your idea to uh, to watch this movie, so I'm going to let you start. Tell us what it's about and what you thought. Okay, so She Dies Tomorrow is the newest film by Amy Simons. And uh, you might know her work um, from her collaboration with uh, the guy who did Upstream Color. I'm kind of forgetting on his name, uh, forgetting his name right now. Um, I think she was in a relationship with Shane Carruth. Um, 
And so uh, she has been an actress and a filmmaker. And uh, she also was one of the showrunners of The Girlfriend Experience, which is, curiously enough, based on a Steven Soderbergh movie. Um, she, I think she co-did it with uh, Lodge Kerrigan. And I was a really big fan of The Girlfriend Experience, the show. And so I was intrigued about this movie. And the premise is, this is definitely in the art house horror variety that we've seen a lot of in the last few years. Um, in Like It Follows would be one of them, or like A Ghost Story, or maybe a few others. Um, it tells the story of Amy, played by Caitlin Scheil. And uh, as the movie opens, she's op uh, moving into a brand new house, which normally would be a fun, exciting event, but she seems very depressed. She plays uh, this Beethoven piece over and over again, almost <coughs> like annoyingly. If, if, you better be prepared to listen to that piece for like six times straight in the movie, because that gets pretty annoying quickly. But uh, there's definitely something wrong with her. We later learn that she's a recovering alcoholic, so maybe she's like back on the wagon. Who knows? Her friend comes over, and her, her friend is played by Jane Addams, who it's nice to see in movies again. And then she keeps saying that she's gonna die tomorrow and she's like obsessed with this notion of dying tomorrow and her friend's like come on get off get off the drugs get off the alcohol amy but then the friend goes back to her house and her friend i don't know does something with microbiology i wasn't quite sure what she did with it but then she starts thinking you know what i'm gonna die tomorrow too and then she starts freaking out and then has a freak out in her pajamas and then she goes to her brother's house and her brother's throwing this big birthday party for his wife and the brother character is played by chris messina his wife is played by katie Azelton, and they're having this big party and they're talking about dolphins uh and uh you know um everyone's like who is this crazy person it, you know, throwing down our party, uh, giving us a buzzkill. But then, like, ten minutes later, they start thinking they're going to die. And it's very clear that whatever this strange sort of psychological virus is, it makes people believe they're going to die, and it spreads... Uh, not not too unlike COVID, actually. And it's sort of funny that this movie co is coming out in the COVID era. Obviously, it was made before COVID. Uh, but boy, it sure makes Amy Simitz look like a genius for writing this because, um, you know, it's, it's not heavy-duty intellectual lifting to say that this is a great metaphor for the COVID era uh, because everyone believes they're going to die. And one of the things I, I really admired about the movie is it wasn't about, I think a lesser filmmaker would have made it about if these people actually do die, if they're sort predilections become true if it turns into reality but the movie's not really interested in that the movie's much more interested in this kind of idea that like what would you do if you thought you only had 24 hours left to live and some of the characters do pretty extreme things uh some of them um you know uh to do, make a uh, very bi big bold decisions that they wouldn't have done if they didn't think they were going to die tomorrow um sort of an interesting sort of psychological exercise um, the movie is slow in the first part in introducing the Amy character, but once we get these other characters in, um, I was really fascinated by the universe that, that this movie created. And uh, I'm not going to say the movie's creepy, really, but there are. It, it's also um, very funny. It, it's disturbing in some ways. There's a great small performance by Josh Lucas. And I do feel as though, and, and Michelle Rodriguez, who's also in this movie, I feel like um, this is definitely in the art house sector, but I do feel like people are going to be talking about this movie because it lines up so well with COVID, but also because it's just a really good movie. Um, I give it three stars. I think I want to go back and rewatch it again because... Uh, like I said, the, the worst part of this movie for me was the opening 30 minutes, and I think if I understood the premise a little bit better, um, and looking back on those first 30 minutes, I think I would appreciate and understand what the director was trying to go for a little bit more, but uh, a, a higher ceiling on the end of three stars, closer to three and a half than two and a half, so I'm excited. I'm really excited, though, to hear what Terry has to say about this movie. I was going to say, I, I knew you were going to like it. Uh, I feel like I mean, this is a movie, 
it reminds me of when we talked about Mother. Of this, there's this movie that I'm like, okay, am I missing something here? Why do people like this? <laughs> I mean, I, I'm I'm giving it one and a half stars, and I feel like I'm kind of being generous. Ouch. Um, this is. I, all right, all right. IMDb. This is the 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 description where they like kind of summarize and give a little synopsis of the movie. This is what IMDb says: Amy thinks she's dying tomorrow, and it's contagious. Like the movie could have been that long. That's all it needed to be because that's all it is. It's like, I'm going to die tomorrow. Like, that could have been the only line of dialogue in the movie, and just multiple people say it. If I didn't know it was possible to have an 86-minute slow burn of a movie, um, this proved me wrong, because it is a slow burn, even though it's under an hour and a half. Um, it, it's just bizarre how it's just like, da 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 I'm going along, and then, oh, red and blue lights. Oh, no, I'm going to die tomorrow now. It, it had no point. I felt like it really had no point. It was just bizarre. My favorite character in the whole thing was uh, Brian, played by uh, Tunde Adebimpe, who looked like Dennis Haysbert, but with a gray beard. And, I mean, the look on his face constantly the entire time was, why am I in this movie? Like, that, 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 that was the vibe I was getting from him the entire time. I was like, why am I in this movie? And even every line he, he, he spoke, he's... It, He's saying it like, um, this doesn't make any sense. Why am I here? And and he could have, and he was saying like, I need to go visit my dying father in the hospital. But he's like, I really have no business being in this movie because it's just stupid. <laughs> uh, it, th this, it made no sense to me. I must be missing something if people like it. I, but I'm, I'm kind of at a loss. So... I'm I'm going one and a half stars. Todd, where where are you at with well, this? Well, you said you don't know why people like the movie. I don't know that they really do. It it does have a five point two on IMDb, which is really really. It's low. true. But um, but it's only got fifteen hundred like votes too. So yeah. bare, not very many people are watching this. Yeah. Uh. Well, oddly enough, I disagree with a lot of what Zach said. I'm mean, I'm giving it the same review rating as him at three stars. It's, which is kind of strange. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. I think um, Simons is actually a better actress than she is a director. She was really good in Wild Nights with Emily and, like, The Killing. But I'm, and I would have liked to see her play the lead in the movie that she named after herself. But, I mean, Caitlin Shield, she's, like, got this, like, dead-eyed stare the whole time that she looks like a young, like, sissy space sack or something. But Simons directing is interesting because it does remind me a lot of Alex Ross Perry movies, but with this, like, Gaspar No, like, psychological, like, psychedelic, weird vibe to it, which uh, over-stylized visual thing, which is interesting, and I don't really know that it fit the movie at, at all times, but I don't know, it, it is what it is. I think it is sort of creative and beguiling, and it's it, it does have, like, a slow burn subtlety. I actually wanted the movie to be, like, a lot longer. I wanted to spend more time with these mm -hmm. characters and in this and with this premise, and so I could, like, understand it more fully, because, like, 40 minutes go by, and absolutely nothing legibly really happens, and, and and the movie's, like, half over, and then the plot starts, sort of, which is kind of odd. It, it does sort of go play... We spend a half hour watching Amy listen to Beethoven. Right. Well, yeah. I, yeah. Literally, yeah. a half hour. Yeah, exactly. And, I don't know, it, it goes places you don't expect. I think that to say that it's just, like, predict the pandemic is, is sort of makes it sound stupid like the movie is about like isolation and depression about like dealing with trauma and it like it it, it uh it portrays the 
you know, thinking you're gonna die is this, like, impending doom that, like, nobody understands, and, like, you know, you feel like you're not okay, and it, the neg and negativity is contagious. It's, it's about depression, it's not about the virus, but I think that's kind of dumb to even think about, uh, but uh, it is a poignant message to have for the movie, so yeah, I'm giving it three stars. I, I, I wish it was longer, honestly, so, I mean, I'm, like, complete opposite of Terry. I, I disagree with almost everything Zach said, but, I, I mean, I'm going to three stars still. <laughs> we have three completely different opinions however two people think it's good it's really that's really funny yeah i, I you know i sort of agree with you todd i mean actually I, I think we're probably closer than than you realize you're right i mean it's not it's not like a perfect metaphor for uh for covid or whatever but um i agree this movie could have should have been longer maybe it turns into an hbo miniseries this is a fascinating universe that i want to explore and yet i have no real interest in knowing if these people actually die or not so i do sort of understand making the ending somewhat abrupt because the point is to not get that resolution and i think that's an audacious move by the director i also want to say that i i just this is a personal thing i love party scenes that get crashed by people and i love this birthday party that just gets crashed by jane adams i that i i mean oh my gosh that's like one of the best scenes in any movie i've seen this year i love awkward family dynamics and you know we got that like the wife is like oh you ruin everything jane it's always about you and then they're talking about like dolphin f***ing, and then like gradually everything starts like Oh, really? Well, things, maybe maybe we will die tomorrow. Like, that is a great scene. Even, Terry, I know you didn't like the movie, but at least admit, that was a good scene. That, that was pretty funny, watching watching her just kind of randomly walk into the... In pajamas. The party I love that. pajamas and, and slippers, yeah. That was awesome. That, that was, was like out good. of Krisha or something. Like, that was out of some other Mumblecore Universe movie, but it was great. It fit perfectly. That was a fun scene, and I also thought the, the scene with Josh Lucas was really awkwardly entertaining of of jane just in there it's like oh yeah i think i'm okay but i'm dying tomorrow so it's like wait what <laughs> and josh lucas i was like finally there's a voice of reason in this movie and then by the end of it he's like crying and weeping and like potentially just going to start humping her and then <laughs> leaves <laughs> yeah it's i don't know there's several times this movie i'm like why the hell are you in this movie? Like, Michelle Rodriguez pops up with five minutes left in the movie. It's like, why are you in this movie? What is going on? Yeah. And how is Jane still alive? I mean, like, that entire swimming pool was red by the time that she was done. I also really like the performance of Adam Wingard as uh, Dune Buggy Man, and that's what he's uh, named in the IMDb credits for the movie. Because he's like, you know, he's just this dude who works at the Dune Buggy lot, and he sees this, you know, crazy lady who wants to ride a Dune Buggy in the middle of the night. He's like, hey, whatever. And then by the end of it, he's all, like, depressed and miserable, too. Like, I, w I would so want to see that. Like, imagine all these happy, peppy people in the world and then five minutes later they're like i'm dying tomorrow that is a, a mini series i would absolutely watch that sounds hilarious and awesome see i thought this would have been better as a 10 minute short just like amy I i'm gonna die tomorrow and then she goes and sees jane and jane i'm gonna die tomorrow and then it, it that that's all it is is just people visiting people and just telling like watching this i was like all right todd do you remember back in the day the uh the like 30 second or minute movie synopses done by animated rabbits no do you, do you remember those at all like there there was one about reservoir dogs where it was anyways they, they there was this one website that used to do like minute synopses of movies 
with animated rabbits. That okay, was hilarious. I'm gonna die! You're not gonna die! Oh, hold me! It's <laughs> you cut my ear off! I mean, this, yeah. Anyways, um, I felt like this movie was, like, built, like, made to be parodied by animated rabbits in a minute long... I'm gonna die tomorrow! No, you're not! I'm gonna die tomorrow! No, you're not! I'm gonna die... It, it, it was built to be parodied in a one minute by animated rabbits. That's what this movie is. A little bit. I, I also thought... thought <laughs> I thought a lot about... Uh, the uh, Rachel Dratch character Debbie Downer on SNL like that's almost this is like a full length version of a Debbie Downer sketch like the one with Lindsay Lohan and Jimmy Fallon where they go to Disneyland like if you like that sketch you're probably going to like this movie but like Todd said just fast forward through the first 35 minutes you don't need that the other part I thought was really funny is um, is when Katie Aselton who obviously hates Jane who's, his, who's her sister-in-law right. is like Jane did this to us. Jane killed us. How dare she? <laughs> I mean that that was that was a pretty good part too. But it it's still, like I said, I feel like Mother with this, where it's like, okay, maybe on a repeat viewing, I'm gonna actually like find the humor yes, and the the dark humor saying. in this and really enjoy it. But in the first watch, is like, what the hell is this? What am I watching and why? I would not be shocked if this ends up on my top 10 list. Like, I want to rewatch it. I'm also very intrigued by who's the pizza man? The pizza man, the invisible pizza man is the, where this comes from, right? He started right? it all. Yeah. So yeah. what is with that? Like, there's so many, like, mind f questions with this movie that I want answered. And I think very few movies, especially movies as, as terrible in the first 30 minutes as this movie was, are that, inspired that many questions and that much interest in the characters and the universe it builds. Like, kudos to this director. I mean, she really turned this movie around midway through. This was like, it's like the, this, this movie's like the Washington National season of 2019. Terrible start, but then it kind of like wins the World Series at the end. It's sort of brilliant. I'm not going oh, that far. Man. I'm keeping it at one and a half stars, but I, I reserve I reserve the right to change my mind. <laughs> I will say, the guys at Ridgewalker Brewery thought this movie sounded really interesting, and I wouldn't be surprised if one of them went home and rented it tonight. <laughs> Just don't order a pizza. That's, I think, the message. And one, of, and one of them said it sounded like a better book than a movie. Which could be. I mean, it could. I could see it being a in a decent book. Anyways, I'm giving it one and a half. Todd and Zach are giving it three. Um, I want to give it four. Yeah. I, I just want to say screw it and give it four. I can't quite do it, but it's maybe a, in a few months I, I'll do it. It's about a $5 rental on VOD right it's now. Worth you it. can get it pretty totally much anywhere. Worth it. So I could say it's worth checking out too. Moving on. It's deep dive time. Uh, we are deep diving from 20 years ago a Best Picture nominee. It was nominated for Best... or one Best Director... Uh, we are looking at traffic today. The director of Aaron Brockovich and Out of Sight. I have a job for you, but I don't have much time. Takes you beyond the slogans. Where the hell are the drugs? Where are they? Behind the corruption. You make us believe you got a boss. That's no, a death sentence. And into the depths of an underworld. You worry about getting me what I want. I worry about myself. Where no one. Open the damn door! Don't do this vigilante thing. Gets away clean. Now, I know this is a movie that the three of us hadn't seen in a while but uh it felt like a, an important movie to go back and revisit and and talk about so this is gonna be fun we're gonna start with our trivia and i'm hosting this time and uh i'm gonna start with uh 
I'm going to start with Zach. So Todd, unplug and go home. So we have, Zach, we have nine questions here. Worth, let's hear two. Except, or did you take out the question about James Brolin? J- J- you know what? I will. James Brolin's the take out that question. James Brolin's the answer to my to that question you were going to ask. I should get a point for that. It, was, it wasn't. It wasn't fully that. It was. It was what um, who? It, what actors in Traffic have also appeared in a Pee Wee movie? And <laughs> that's a great James question. Brolin and Benicio, and Benicio del Toro. That's right. He you was Wolf Boy in Big Top Pee Wee. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, so we've got eight questions, and it's worth one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen questions, seventeen points. Okay. Eight questions, seventeen points. All right. Question number one: Traffic was the third highest-grossing film domestically in January of two thousand one. Name the two films that grossed more that month, and you get. I'm going to give you some hints. One of them was a two thousand Oscar contender. And one was a January 2001 release. Uh, okay. That's a terrible question. Um, <laughs> I'm just... It's a question you would ask. Yeah, probably. I'm, not, I'm just not going to think about it too much. There's, there's no way I'm getting this. So I'm going to say the 2001 movie, Behind Enemy Lines, I feel like that came out in early 2001. That's not right, though. That is incorrect. Okay. It was Save the Last Dance. Ah, interesting. Okay, and then the 2000 Oscar contender that uh, was grossing money in January of 2001 would have been almost famous. No, it was Castaway. Okay. All right, next question. This question is worth seven points. Yeah, here we go. Which actors in in Traffic worked with Soderbergh on other projects? Okay, good question. Um, so we're going to go with uh, uh, Benicio Del Toro. That is correct. We're going to go with Don Cheadle. Correct. Luis Guzman. Correct. Uh, okay, now it gets a little tricky. Uh, um, Catherine Zeta Jones. Yeah, she was in that correct. one movie. Okay. Um, you got three more. Three more. Okay. Uh, Benjamin Bratt? Incorrect. All right. Uh, the other three were Michael Douglas. He was what in was Behind he? the Candelabra. Oh, okay. Forgot. Uh, Albert Finney, That's who was in Two That Year. Yep. And then the last one is kind of random. David Jensen? Who, who was he in the movie? He, he's, well, in Traffic, he's the guy who was, who owned the place that Caroline was sitting in high. Okay. Like, the place that, that Michael Douglas knocks down the, the door okay. to. Anyways. Uh, all right. Uh, number three. According to Don Cheadle, what does Louis Guzman do every time that gives him away when he's undercover? Tells jokes. Tells a joke. Um, where were the parents of the kid that OD'd? <laughs> um, that's a good question. Okay, so, doesn't she say something like, they were away, they're on vacation. Are you asking, mm-hmm. like, where on vacation? Where were they on vacation? Oh, man. Barbados. Barbados. Good call. Knew was in the uh, Caribbean what was the what was the nickname of Madrigal, the man who was rumored of dying during plastic surgery? 
Oh, God. I don't know. Um, Scorpion, right? Scorpion. Okay. Correct. Sorry, misunderstood the question. Okay. Uh, What gift did Helena Ayala give for Castro and Gordon in the surveillance van? Lemonade. Lemonade is correct. Uh, What is the name of the Ayala boy? That's a good question. Henry? David. David. All right. And last question were three points. What were the three things that Ruiz tells Monty would have been different if he hadn't gotten caught? Okay, so uh, Luis Guzman wouldn't have died. His partner wouldn't have died. Correct. People who were doing drugs would still be getting high. Correct. And he wouldn't be there having to, to watch him as a witness. I'll give it to you. They wouldn't have to eat breakfast together. Oh, uh, yeah, same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, you got 11 points out Sweet. of what I say. It was out of 17. Yeah. You, you ran the, all the categories that actually dealt with the movie. That was impressive. Yeah. All right, let's bring it back. Okay. All right. Oh, and, and I think I think Zach has uh, reached his time to get a new beer. I, has it been 25 minutes? We'll see. <laughs> I think it has. <laughs> all right, so... Uh, there are eight questions worth 17 points. Zach got 11. So, we'll see how you do. Probably not as well as that. Question number... <clears throat> question number one. Traffic was the third highest grossing film domestically in January 2001. Name the two films that grossed more that month. And I'll give you two hints. One of them was a 2000 Oscar contender, and one was a January 2001 release. Uh-uh. Yeah, good luck with that one. <laughs> um, so I'm going to say uh, Almost Famous and... That's what Zach said. So I was obviously wrong. And it was wrong. Yeah. It was wrong. Uh, it was obviously. That, the, yeah. Um, the uh, the 2000 Oscar contender that w- that was number one at the box office that month was Castaway. Okay, yeah, I, I was thinking that too actually. Um, and I'll say Shallow Hell. That is incorrect. It is Save the Last Dance. Was not going to get that. Yeah, yeah. All right. Next question is worth seven points. Which actors in Traffic worked with Soderbergh on other projects? Uh, how many are there? Seven. That's oh, why so, it's worth seven uh, points. Uh, Catherine Zeta-Jones. That is correct. Uh, Albert Finney. Correct. Um, uh, I'm gonna say Clifton Collins Jr. That is incorrect. Which means you're done. Oh, okay. Um, how, how about Don Cheadle in all the Oceans movies? Right. Uh, Louis Guzman. What was he in? Uh, Benicio. The Limey. He was in. The Lime. Out of Sight. The Limey. Yeah, Limey Out of Sight. Uh, Benicio Del Toro was in Che. Oh, yeah. Um, Michael Douglas was in Behind the Candelabra. And the last one, which was the toughest one, is David Jensen. Who's just kind of like in the background and some stuff. He was the guy who owned the place that Caroline was at at the end when Michael Douglas knocks down the door. Wow. I didn't even know that guy had a name. Okay. 
I didn't either, but apparently he's he was also in like the Oceans movies, or at least Oceans 11. Okay. According to Don Cheadle, what does Louis Guzman do every time that gives him away when he's undercover? Tells a joke. He tells a joke. Uh, where were the parents of the kid that OD'd? Uh, Barbados. Barbados. Uh, what was the nickname of Madrigal, the man who was rumored of dying during plastic surgery? The nickname, uh... I don't know, the Grim Reaper. No, it was a scorpion. Okay. Um, what gift did Helena Ayala have for Castro and Gordon in the surveillance van? Lemonade. Lemonade. Uh, what is the name of the Ayala boy? Carlos Jr.? David. <laughs> And the last one is worth three points. What were the three things Ruiz tells Monty would have been different if he hadn't gotten caught? I'm not, I'm not recalling the conversation. I don't know. It's it's the conversation right before Ruiz dies. Is poisoned. In the hotel right. room. Uh, In the hotel room. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, a few more people would have gotten high, his partner would be alive, and they wouldn't have to eat breakfast together. Yeah. Okay, yeah. See, th th this movie's hard. Like, like I, there's so much going on, like, to, to pick up little details like that, or, like, to remember little yeah. details like that. It's going to be difficult. I thought I, thought I went, there were a couple that were a little obscure, but then I thought the other ones were fairly, you know, how, well, how much were you paying attention right. Even though, like I said, none of us have really seen it recently. Anyways, so with a score of 11 to 5, Zach wins. Um, Zach, that means you get to tell us all about what traffic is about and your thoughts and your experience with the no, movie. No, 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 no. We're not doing that. We're going to Todd first. He's the one that picked the movie. I want to hear his thoughts. Also, why he chose it. Okay, he defers. Todd, tell us all about traffic. Uh, well, traffic is like an interlocking story drama, crime drama about the war on drugs. You have Michael Douglas playing the new drug czar and his with his daughter addicted to drugs. And then you have like Benicio del Toro playing a Mexican cop and you have Don Cheadle and Louis Guzman playing DEA agents fighting the war on opposite sides of the border. And then you have Catherine Zeta-Jones as the wife of like a drug kingpin and her dealing with everything. It's it's a really good, really deep, complicated crime drama, and it's one that I've always really appreciated and really liked. It's, it's, it's one of the best movies of 2000, and it's a movie that doesn't really look like most movies. Like, the only movie that has a look like this is, like, Tony Scott's Domino or something. Like, it, it, is, a, it, it is a movie full of, like, colors in, like, interesting places, and I it's a, it's a great movie. It's a really deep and disturbing movie, and uh, it's one that has, like, a million great performances, and... Uh, yeah, it's, it's one of my favorite movies. All right. Zach, what do you have to add? Okay, so I, I just want to... I, I feel like whoever picks the movie should, should introduce the movie. Because um, it, it was an interesting selection, um, Traffic. It is 20 years old. A lot of the actors and people associated with this movie are still talked about in a lot of ways. And it's a movie that kind of introduced to the cinematic universe the idea of a hyperlink movie. Um, characters chained uh, in, in, in interconnected and unexpected and surprising ways. Terry reviewed Amoris Peros last week, which also in some ways I, I kept on thinking about while watching this movie. 
Um, it's a movie that I remember rooting for at the 2000 Oscars, even though I was 13 years old and never seen it. Um, I remember thinking it was really stupid that Gladiator won Best Picture. All right, I, I'm just going to come out and say it. This movie did not age well for me. Uh, I gave it four stars. Originally, it was number eight on my top ten of 2000 lists, and wow, it, it is not the same movie. I, maybe I've grown. Maybe I, I'm just. Uh, I, I it wasn't as good as I remembered. Um, I think that the the key is that I think since 2000 there have been a multitude of movies and TV shows that have done what this movie tries to do and done it better. And that's almost not fair. I mean, you can't, you know, you can't, you know, blame a movie for coming out a little too early. But I do feel like we have Breaking Bad, we have Sicario, we have Babel, we have these other hyperlink movies that I think did a better job. And, you know, uh, this movie just didn't work for me this time around. Um, and I'll, we'll get into the reasons as we get deeper into this podcast, but it was one of those kind of shocking moments where it's like, it was just, it's been a given for me for the last 20 years to simply say traffic uh, was, uh, you know, got, got the short end of the stick. It should have won Best Pictures. It saw, it saw one of Soderbergh's best movies. It is not. Aaron Brockovich was the better Soderbergh 2000 movie, in my opinion, and uh, I'm, I'm sorry, this movie didn't age well. That's not to say that we can't have an interesting conversation about it, and there are a lot of provocative points about the movie, but it was overall a disappointment watching it again. I, I see what you mean. Um, it definitely feels like a movie of the time, and uh, but I was able to still watch it and, and uh, enjoy it for what it was. I remember first time I watched this movie, I think I'd only seen this movie once before this week when we when we decided we were going to deep dive it. And I remember watching it, and it was one of those movies where I don't even remember what I gave it. I gave it like three and a half stars or something like that, but it was one of those where I gave it that out of respect because it was like one of those, all right, everyone tells me I'm supposed to love this movie, but I really right. didn't get it. Um, I remember watching, like, what what's the big deal? Actually, no, I gave it, I gave it three stars, barely three stars. Um, but, it, and yeah, I didn't really get it. And this time around I was able to, I understood what was going on a little bit better. Um, and it's definitely got, like Todd said, it's definitely got a lot of really amazing performances in it. Um, but, uh, and, and I think you've said this too. I don't think it's necessarily fair to look at this movie and criticize it because of how others have tried to emulate it or, and, um, and maybe I think superseded what makes it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, at the same time, I, I would say, like, like you mentioned, Amoris Peros, I, I, meant, I reviewed last week. I think Amoris Peros does what Traffic does better. And that came out the exact same year. Um, at the same time, this is, it's more than just the interlocking stories, but it's talking about the war on drugs. It's ta- and it's got this really um, fascinating... Um, these fascinating family dynamics at the at the core, whether it be um, Michael Douglas and his daughter, or Catherine Zeta Jones and and her husband, um, or or Benicio del Toro and his partner's wife, um, it, it's got some really fascinating family dynamics here. I would say what makes this movie fascinating is how this is a Steven Soderbergh movie, and he has not made a single movie that's anything close to like this. At least that I've seen. I, I have some holes in my Soderbergh viewing, but this is so different than what he is known to be, um, and uh, that I, I that's what I was was struck by. And I, 
other than like the colors, I mean, he's known for for his 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 colorization of the of the lens and the camera and everything's got to be the same color and things like that. But just the the way that the story is told, the the weight of the story that's told, um, he's not really known for doing that. And this is kind of a step out for him that he hasn't really approached much. I mean, am I am I wrong in saying that? That's true. Well, you know, Soderbergh, like, he sort of had an auspicious beginning to his career. Like, he started with Sex, Lies, and Videotape. He was the critical darling of Sundance right before Tarantino. Um, I think Tarantino's success maybe took some of the glamour out of Soderbergh because he, I think he struggled throughout most of the 90s. And films like Kafka and King of the Hill uh, really didn't have a critical sort of popularity. But then he made Out of Sight which kind of put him back in the discussion of relevant filmmakers. And then he did The Limey. And The Limey is a movie that I would actually say has a lot of similarities to Traffic in the sense that it has this deliberately fractured narrative that you sort of have to piece together on its own. Um, And so this movie is a step out in the sense that it has an all-star cast and there's, uh, you know, it it has um, a a, a glitz to it and definitely a higher budget than some of his movies. But no, I think actually this this situates itself very much in the Soderbergh universe. And there are definitely some things in this movie that he does well and things that he doesn't do well that have also reappeared in other other movies that he's made. Contagion, I I I think, is also similar to to this movie a lot. I, I still haven't seen Contagion. But I think one thing that does hold true with this is Soderbergh tells the stories he wants to tell, no matter what. And this one probably finally got, I mean, 2000 is when he, I mean, he's a double nominee for Best Picture, a double nominee for Best Director for this and Aaron Brockovich. And I think what finally happened is he finally got recognized. Like, they fought, everyone finally noticed what he was doing, and... Um, he find all the stars kind of aligned, like literally and figuratively, um, in in having a star-studded cast like this, and then having having films that really hit. I mean, um, Aaron Brockovich is another amazing movie. Um, yet at the same time, I mean, like critically and box office wise, you could say Aaron Brockovich is very similar to The Blind Side, in that it just it had it was this film that had this this powerhouse performance by a known actress at the core that everybody connected with and everybody went to go see. And um, I'm not saying like the quality of film of Blindside and Aaron Brockovich compare because they don't, but it kind of caught fire in a bottle in a way and elevated him to this other level to the point that the next year he's making like the first of, of, you know, a... A trend in the in this century of just throw a whole bunch of stars on screen and see what happens when you made Ocean's Eleven. Todd, tell us we're wrong. You're, you're the biggest defender of this movie. Is, where does this rank for you on the Soderbergh spectrum? Which maybe will lead us into our next segment. Well, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I don't think, I think I, 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 the way I watched it this time, I, I feel the exact same way I did when I watched it before. I don't think it, it ages well or better or worse than it did when I watched it when in like 2005 or whenever I first saw it. I, I, I still think it, it, it still hits all the emotional beats that it did before, and I still think it's just as insightful. And I think it is the, the, like one of the best movies that does this, this disjointed storyline kind of thing. 
Uh, and I, I, I don't know, I think it's probably, it's either my number one or number two Soderbergh movie, and it, it I, I really do think it, it is different than anything else on his filmography. I, I can't see, other than maybe Che, I, I, can't, I can't see comparisons with a whole lot of his other movies. Alright, well let's hop into our next segment, and that is, we're going to do a Mount Rushmore of Steven Soderbergh. Way, way, way back, what was it, was it three years ago that we started this podcast, Todd? Yeah, yeah, I think it was, yeah. Three years ago. Like August 2017, sounds right. August, yeah, August of 2017. I remember the first film we reviewed was Dunkirk. And uh, and the tech failed on us, and we had to review it twice. Yeah. Um, anyways, on the second episode, we talked about the highest war films of Steven Soderbergh's career. And we're going to kind of rehash that conversation a little bit, but we're going to instead build a Mount Rushmore of Steven Soderbergh films. Um, and see what are his, what are his touchstones throughout his career. Um, Todd, we're going to start with you. What, what would be your submission for Mount Rushmore? So I assume we're not choosing this as the one that is common. Um, I would say, I'm going to say no, no, and then we'll uh, leave it up for debate when we get there. (laughs) Well, okay, I'll just choose this one then. Screw it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay all right That's well todd fair. chooses todd chooses traffic and, and well like i said it, it i feel like it's unlike most of what i've seen from soderbergh so so yeah that's fair uh zach you're next todd knows what movie i'm gonna choose right you know todd yeah, right bubble it is bubble one of my favorite movies of the decade 2006 my best actress winner is uh debbie what's her name dobrenier i think and i don't think she's made any other movies but bubble one of my favorite things about bubble and the reason that i have to choose it as my favorite steven soderbergh movie is if you look at the cover of the movie the poster the uh, subtitle is another steven soderbergh experience not a movie by steven soderbergh another steven soderbergh experience and when you think about when you think about him as a director you know, I think it's it's probably accurate to say that his movies are more experiential than they are like cinema or traditional cinema. He's always doing cutting edge stuff, lo- love him or hate him. And, you know, some of the stylistic excess and traffic we'll get into later that I didn't like. But in Bubble, you know, he just takes this HD camcorder and goes into this small town in like West Virginia and tells this story of workers at a doll factory. It's kind of interesting that dolls play a role in traffic as well. And this really bizarre love triangle between this older woman named Martha and this young guy named Kyle and the older woman has feelings for the young guy but he's pretty oblivious to it and then he gets sort of uncomfortable around her and then this new girl comes in who he does have feelings for and you know you can sort of predict in terms of the story where it's going to go but oh my gosh this is an awesome movie and it's totally totally different than Traffic there's no big stars in it there's no special effects there's nothing glamorous about the movie at all it's really drab and droll you'd almost think it was like if the Darden brothers made an American movie and it is the penultimate Steven Soderbergh experience. It is uh, an, an amazing movie, and I like when he gets experimental like this. I like the girlfriend experience and Unsane, and when he's doing like low budget things. Maybe he shoots it on a phone. Maybe he shoots it on an HD camcorder. I don't know, but uh, I like I like his experimentation. I I knew you were gonna pick that too. Uh, I have never seen Bubble. However, I did give Zach a DVD copy of Bubble at one point. Really? So that's why I own the DVD of it. Yeah. Good yeah. to know. I got it like a Hollywood video as it was going out of business. And I remember seeing I'm like, Bubble! Zach would like that. And so <laughs> <laughs> It's also exactly half the length of traffic, which I think is, is an improvement. It's only like 71 minutes. 
It's about half as good nice. as traffic as well. <laughs> oh, there you go. It's what I find interesting about Bubble is, like, like you said, nobody's heard of Bubble. It's a super low-budget thing that he did, yet he made it in between Ocean's 12 and Ocean's 13. So, like, he... Yep. He's at the height of his powers. He's making these huge, big-budget, movie star-packed films. And what does he do? He goes, like you said, he goes and makes some random movie in the middle of West Virginia somewhere. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, and what's interesting also about Bubble, real fast, is that it was the first movie to simultaneously premiere in theaters, on TV, and have a DVD release, which now we just sort of say, oh, you know, that's, that's not too uncommon, right? But this was the movie that I think started the shift to streaming platforms, so it has a place in film history. All right. Um, all right, my pick here. I'm, I'm going to go with Ocean's Eleven, uh, because I would say this is probably what he's most known for. It's probably like if you were to go go down the street and ask someone uh, to name to name a Steven Soderbergh movie, they would probably say Ocean's Eleven. Um, but I also think it's it's a really good movie too. Like it, it's one of those where, I mean, what do you do? What happens when you get this star-studded cast and then put a good director putting putting a really a really solid story behind it and i it just works and you've got all these stars that are willing to to uh step aside and and be a part of this ensemble and of all the like star-studded casts of the last 20 years i think oceans 11 works better than most because the stars are willing to to be a part of the ensemble instead of trying to fight for the limelight um whether whether it's George Clooney or Brad Pitt or Julia Roberts or Andy Garcia or Bernie Mac or Casey Affleck or Scott Kahn or Carl Reiner is in it. I mean, Don Cheadle, whoever is in it, it doesn't really matter. They, they are all in support of one thing, and that's telling telling the best story and making the best movie possible. Matt Damon. How did I forget Matt Damon? Um, so uh, the sequels aren't as good. Ocean's Eleven is solid. And... Um, it's his most commercial movie he's ever made by far. Or I guess you could say the sequels are probably more commercial because, I mean, the only reason you make a sequel to Ocean's Eleven is because you want the money. But, um, yeah, uh, I, I would put that up as, a, as my submission. So you're saying his, his cast works better than the MCU cast? Uh, yeah, probably. Because the only way the MCU cast worked is if they all got their own movie before. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah i suppose i mean yeah uh okay so we've got traffic we've got bubble and we've got oceans 11 what are what are we looking at here for for a last one i love that you could say that those were our three picks and everyone would know exactly which one which one of us picked each of those three <laughs> movies and that's one of the great things about soderbergh too is he makes something that's for everybody True. I mean, not every movie is going to be your cup of tea, but one of his movies, everyone is going to love. All right. Um, I I would say I I really liked Unsane. That was that's the most recent one of his I've seen, and I thought that was a really interesting movie. Um, Logan Lucky disappointed. If I were to throw any others out there, the there were three others I would throw out there. Uh, Haywire, Magic Mike, and Side Effects. Those are probably the three other movies of his that I like the most. 
Well, the only other ones I was considering to say were Sex, Lies, and Videotape, which is either his first or second best movie. Uh, Out of Sight, uh, The Informant, or Che. And aside from that, I mean, I, I think they all kind of get jumbled in the middle of that, like, two and a half, three star range. High Flying Bird and whatever else. Like, they're all in that same same uh, same area. But, like, those ones I think are cut above the rest. The Informant's not bad. That's the only one that you just mentioned that I've seen. Uh, out of sight seems like a Terry movie. Yeah, out of that's, sight's that's pretty That's the good. George Clooney, Jennifer Lopez one, right? Yes. Out of sight is like Ocean's Eleven meets Jackie Brown. I feel like, um, but it's it's a pretty good movie. I I would I would maybe put that, but I you know I like his indie weird movies. I mean I like The Girlfriend Experience. That would be one of my submissions. I would not submit Full Frontal. That was terrible. But like, um, uh, and then I, I would also think about King of the Hill. But I mean, have either of you seen King of the Hill? Like, that's actually a really good movie, um, but no one has seen it. And it's, yeah, this is a challenge. It's like you said, Terry, it's the best and worst thing. He makes movies for everyone, and because our three tastes are so different, it's going to be hard to find a movie, not just that we can agree upon, but that we've all seen. So maybe we just say screw it and go with The Informant, which I think we can all say is a pretty good movie, right? I liked it. I don't remember yeah. too much of it. Yeah. Like, the Informant's a great movie. And it. It's one of the more dynamic Matt Damon's performances awesome, for Matt Damon. Yeah, you know, I always thought Matt Damon was a bit of a Streisand, but I believe he kicks a lot of ass in that movie. Right. He informs. I think this is the one. It, it I think was, this is the one movie since Jason Bourne started that you could say he didn't. <laughs> He's such a goddamn great informant in that movie that they gave him an exclamation mark. That is what an awesome, awesome hero he was in that movie. I don't think he kicks ass uh, in downsizing. No. Oh. Not no, a Steven Soderbergh no. movie. No, but but I, yeah, okay, uh, yeah. I I I think we're going with the informant. Let's do it. Do we remember and anything about a, the informant? It's such a different movie too. It's so quirky, like, yeah. It's, I I remember his inner, his like uh, inner monologue that he says something about polar bears, like I remember I remember that was on like one of my favorite <laughs> quotes lists or something that I did at one point. I, I need to watch Side Effects again. I remember I gave that four stars when it came out. I was going like to say that. Top 10 of that I, remember, year. I remember your love of that movie. I don't know why, but I remember it was like on your top ten list. Because it was uh, yeah, strange I, that it was in your top ten list. I gave it four stars. I loved it, but I don't really remember much about it. So I got to go back and watch that one again at some point. All right. So we're going with the informant. So we've got Traffic. We've got Bubble. We've got Ocean's Eleven. And the informant. And wow. that's such an eclectic <laughs> random group. But again, we're talking about one of the more eclectic random filmmakers that's working right now. So I think it I think it's very fitting of his uh, of his filmography to go with uh, four movies like that. OK, well, one of the other exercises we always do on these deep dives. I, I, I was I was thinking again about what else we could call this and and um I thought, and you know, I mentioned before, we could call it a geek out, or we could call it, you know, the long journey to the middle. Um, we could call it a geek dive. I mean, that's kind of what we're doing here. It's a, it's a, just kind of combine them. I don't know. Anyways. I, I dig it. Um, yeah. <laughs> I dig music. Um, anyways, another exercise we always do on these is we recast. And uh, it's been 20 years, so looking at if this movie were made today, 20 years later, who would play uh, some of these uh, some of these roles? And so we've picked out... The problem with this one is there's so many 
characters that you could say are main main characters. So we picked out eight characters that we're going to recast here. Some of them were definitely harder than others, but uh, we're going to start with Robert, played by Michael Douglas. Uh, Todd, you're first. Yeah, I mean, similar to the American president, it's hard to replace Michael Douglas in a role like that. So I, I went with someone who has played a, actually a president in a movie that we reviewed last year, and that's Bob Odenkirk. I, I, I think it'd be interesting to see him be like a family man as well as a politician, and I, I, I don't know, it, I think... I think he has the the stature to be able to do it, but I'm 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 not really digging replacing Michael Douglas regardless of the year. I will say I was kind of thrown off when uh, when Michael Douglas stepped up at at the uh, at the podium in front of the White House banner, and I'm like, dude, it's American President again, just five years later, and he's giving a briefing at the White House. Um, I, I think I'm gonna go next. You missed you missed the low hanging fruit here, Todd. You totally did. Even the same age as Michael Douglas was then, it's got to be Greg Kinnear. Oh. (laughs) Greg Kinnear right now is the same age as Michael Douglas was when Traffic was made. And and it's a it's a perfect fit. Like we've talked we've joked about Greg Kinnear being a part of all this stuff and, and we always have to bring him up. But I honestly think he would do a really good job in this role. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to argue with you. Like, th- that is a pretty good choice. Michael Douglas just seems like All a right. solar, I guess. Yeah, yeah. All right, Zach. And we haven't seen Greg Kinnear in a long time. That's another thing, too. But, all right, Zach, who do you got? I went with Josh Hamilton, who was the dad in eighth grade, because I thought, you know, you'd want a dad performance and this is a dad and so uh literally i'm pretty sure you could pick any uh actor in hollywood age 45 to 60 and get away with it so why not josh hamilton i i'll agree with that okay um next we have javier played by benicio del toro in his oscar winning performance todd who do you got uh and again, not an easy one to replace either. I, I mean, the easy one would be to say Gael Garcia Bernal, but I think he's probably a little too old. So I, I said Jay Hernandez, who has mm, he hasn't one. been in a whole lot of stuff recently that I've seen, but uh, I, mean, I remember really liking him as a as a young Latino actor in like the mid two thousands, and uh, it, it'd be a really tough role for him. But but I mean, I've seen when he played uh, in the Carlitos Way sequel, I I remember really or prequel, I remember really thinking that he had he had a lot of uh, dynamic personality that could fit the character. And that's a great call. Um, I was having trouble coming up with. Uh, so Benicio del Toro was about thirty-two years old in this. I was having trouble coming up with some quality thirty-two-year-old Latino actors that are well known enough for me to be able to to pick for something like this. Um, so uh, the one I ended up going with was um, a little younger, but I think he could pull it off. It's Anthony Ramos, who was is most known as being John Lawrence slash Philip uh, Hamilton in Hamilton. He's going to be starring in In the Heights next year. Um, he is uh, the kid in the Crown Royal commercials. Um, he was Lady Gaga's best friend in A Star Is Born. Um, anyways, who who is he in he, Hamilton? John Lawrence. Oh, hey Lawrence, I like and you Philip a lot. Ham- and yeah, and Philip yeah. Hamilton. Okay. Oh. You know the the nine year old. Yo, uh, Dad, grown I man. can rap. Yeah. 
You can write rhymes, but you can't write mine. Um, yeah, I, that's who I'm going with. He's he's a little too young. My only other option was like Lin-Manuel Miranda, but he's way too old and he doesn't necessarily fit. I was having trouble coming up with good Latino actors to, to fill this role. So I don't really think Zach. Javier's age is really all that important, though. He could be pretty much any age. True. Well, I don't think you... I, I think he's definitely like someone like in their 30s, though. I wouldn't necessarily well, go outside of that. I guess you could. Anyways. I agree right. with Toddy. Age is just a number. I went with uh, Diego Luna. Oh, that's a good call. Yeah, I was thinking about him, yeah. too. He's one that doesn't seem to age, either. No, he could probably... Because I think in real life, he's like... Uh, oh, he's mid-40s. He's 41. Was he, what is he, like 55 now? <laughs> no. <laughs> Not quite that old, but... He's one of those that yeah, seems he, to always look like he's 23. I mean, what? it's been 12 years since Milk. I mean... <laughs> he looks the same age in Milk as he did in Rogue One, and they were made 10 years apart. Okay, uh, next we have Helena, played by Catherine Zeta-Jones. Todd, who do you got? Uh, th- this one could have been pretty much anybody. I, I said Kira Knightley. I... I, I just watched her in a couple of movies recently, but I, I was reminded how awesome she is, and I she would have that sort of like vulnerable, but yet turn into badass personality uh, down pretty well, I think. Uh, that's a good one. I I went with one of the one of the hot actresses, so hot right now, Anna Darmus. Hmm. Have you did you see the pictures I, I of her well. in her new Marilyn Monroe biopic? Whoa. She looks a lot like Marilyn Monroe when she puts a blonde wig on. Like, that is going to be a really good performance, I'm guessing. Do you know what I'm talking about? Did, did... I, I, I think I know what you're talking about, yeah. I haven't seen the pictures, yeah, yeah. but I know that she's playing her. Well, and, and she had she had Knives Out last year. I mean, when eventually, hopefully this year, she has James Bond. Um, she had that, that weird the Mexican we movie we watched. No one yeah, can remember Wasp the name Network. of Wasp Network. And uh, it's a memorable title. Yeah, and then, yeah, <laughs> and uh, I mean, I, I, is she most known right now for dating Ben Affleck? I think she. Well, might they met be, on set but, of that uh, movie that they're doing. The uh, I forget what the director's name is. The guy who did like the Lolita remake. Yeah. Anyways. Adrian Lyne. I, I think she'd be good in yeah, this. Yeah, Adrian Lyne. Yeah, has a movie with a- Affleck and Anna Darmus. That's where they met. Interesting. I didn't know he was still alive. All right, Zach, who do you got as Helena? I mean, I, th- look, I thought that, you know, Catherine Zeta-Jones made a transition from being, like, sort of, um, you know, she was an entrapment. She was known as a very good-looking woman and, you know, this not not too serious in movies until this role. So I went with um, someone maybe in a similar position in the trajectory of their career, and that's Margot Robbie. And, you know, you're looking for, a, you know, a Republican, upper-crust, uh, affluent wife of a drug lord. So I feel like Margot Robbie could kind of pull that off in her sleep. The other thing that's interesting is, you know, Catherine Zeta-Jones makes this movie two years later. She's an Oscar winner. So, and married to Michael Douglas. So, that, I mean, I still don't understand that. I mean, what are they, 30 years apart? I think they're 30 years apart. Um. Okay, next we have Arnie... Played, uh, for some reason, by Dennis Quaid. Um, <laughs> that's a, that is a great call. For some reason. <laughs> so, so the, the, Todd, this one was easy for me. It's, it's Joel Edgerton. 
Uh, that, that is exactly Ooh, the kind of yes. role that he would be playing, and and he he would be way more believable as you know the assistant to the drug lord uh, than than Dennis Quaid. Like I, I mean, he would immediately give the movie more credibility too than 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 Quaid. So yeah, Joel Edgerton for sure. Yeah, I, I think the one reason uh, I'm I don't mind too much Dennis Quaid playing this role is because he's a complete sleazeball in this movie, and uh, and you know. I, I don't know why. I have I have an irrational hate for Dennis Quaid like I have an irrational hate for Kevin Costner. I, it doesn't really make any sense. You don't um, like actors who play in but, baseball uh, movies. Apparently not. <laughs> but uh, so I went with what I what I find interesting is he doesn't necessarily look like the right kind of guy, but he's kind of sneakily, you know, on the ends of everything. And so I went with Patrick Wilson. I think he kind of fits that mold too. Of you don't necessarily expect this out of him, but then all of a sudden he he goes there, and you're like, whoa, whoa, that's that's what he's doing. So that's who I went with. Yeah, it's not bad. I was I was actually thinking of Billy Crudup too uh, for that role. I mean, yeah. they're all in that same kind of same kind of vein. Well, Billy yeah, Crudup, Billy Crudup did that in Mission Impossible Three and and uh, Spotlight, sort of the same character. Oh yeah. Yeah, th- this was not a very hard role to recast. Again, a lot of actors just uh, who can vaguely project slimeball. I actually thought of two. I, I went with Peter Sarsgaard and Edward Norton. You know, pick whichever one. But I think both can play asshole lawyer pretty well. Probably Peter Sarsgaard. I lean more yeah, to that's that. that's a good one. <clears throat> that's a great call. That's a great call. I like that one. All right. Uh, next, we have Caroline, played by Erica Christensen, who was only 18 when this movie was made, which I find just fascinating. Uh, Todd, who do you got? Uh, so I said Bailey Madison, who is an act- a young actress that I'm not really even like that much, but I think she could really uh, like do a good job in this one. Like I remember the first time I saw her was in that movie Brothers with Tobey Maguire, but she's been in a bunch of random like Adam Sandler movies and stuff like since then, but she's about around the right age, and... It, she has that uh, the the look on her face that that could um, that could per- that could play Caroline because I mean Eric Christensen does a really good job at, at that and uh, I think that that's as close as I could come to the right age and the right style of actress. Yeah, I think what Erica Christensen has going for her so much in this is she's she's so girl next door that you get wrapped up into where she ends up and it kind of gives that anybody could could end up here vibe um i mean it, it's it's kind of cheap to go this way but i went with rowan blanchard who was the star of girl meets world okay. i think she's kind of in that same boat of just that that sweet innocent naive uh girl that ends up where um where you wouldn't expect her i i mean you could throw sabrina carpenter in there too who is the the best friend in girl meets world she might even fit a little better in this but um but yeah that's where i'm going Zach, what do you got? Screw you, Terry. I also went with Sabrina Carpenter because um, she's been mentioned on... I don't know who this person is. I've never watched Girl Meets World, but I feel like she's mentioned on every single one of our podcasts as the requisite <laughs> daughter role. Um, so, yeah. I also, though, um, aside of me, also went with uh, Brooklyn Prince because that would be an unexpected performance by Brooklyn Prince. <laughs> yes. Yes, <laughs> how, it would. How old is she? <laughs> Like, 11, maybe? You know, 10-year-old swinging the crack cocaine, going downtown, you know, running away from rehab. That's a movie I would want to see. 
Maybe you know, right. she, she, she saw it all firsthand on the Florida Project. Ain't nothing new for her. Unexpected performance right there. <laughs> okay, next we have Seth, played by Topher Grace himself. Uh, Todd, who do it's you got? Lucas Hedges. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's... Wow, yeah. I'm kind of embarrassed to say what I have, but... Yeah, Lucas Hedges. That's all you really have to say. Um, I said I had two in mind. I had um, I had Asa Butterfield, or um, if wow. you want to just go full Girl Meets World, go Peyton Meyer, who played Lucas in Girl Meets World. But I think Asa would actually be able to do it. <laughs> and the other the other kid's kind of a crappy actor, so. <laughs> well, I mean, it's still for Grace. <laughs> yeah, well, that that's true. That's true. Um, he, he, he did, he was pretty good as David Duke in Black Klansman, I will say that. Yeah. All right, Zach, who do you got? I went with Jesse Eisenberg, even though he's probably too old, but a real part of me he's does... Really <laughs> Jesse Eisenberg? I know, really I know, right. just, yes. just, just, uh, come on. He's definitely yeah. a high schooler still. <laughs> well, okay, but a part of me also wants to go with Ben Savage, if we're keeping the Girl Meets World theme, because we're talking about 90s superstars, you know? 90s TV superstars. <laughs> being disheveled uh, on camera jesse eisenberg was too old to play a high schooler when he did one in squid and the whale true. <laughs> <laughs> all right uh next we have ray played by louis guzman todd well ray and montel i think kind of go together they're the okay let's do them together, let's uh, do them together. i mean you yeah. need to have people that that are going to be able to have that that banter and that rapport and it, i mean Casting Ray was a lot harder. I went with Michael Pena as Ray and Brian Tyree Henry as Montel. And I, I can imagine what their conversations would be like, but I feel like it would be a lot like like Don Cheadle and Louis Guzman have. Like, I, those guys sort of set the stage for like uh, Casey Affleck and Scott Conn in the Ocean's movies as being like the two random guys in the movie that, that have like a random banter on the side. And uh, I think it would be really, really entertaining to watch Michael Pena and Brian Tyree Henry do that. Michael Pena is like a cheat card. That's not fair. I, That's, I was going to say, like, Michael Pena is the obvious answer. That's what I had, too. But, I mean... <laughs> Michael Pena should have been this role. Yeah, I, Michael Although Pena... Although Louis Guzman's good in it, but... Michael Pena is, is, is like, the new Louis Guzman. Like, the, especially after Michael Pena did Ant-Man and turned himself into a caricature. He, he is, he's like, the rest of his career is going to be all the roles that Louis Guzman had 20 years ago. Yeah, but I mean, I wasn't even really thinking about like a Mexican actor necessarily, but I kept coming back to Lu- to Michael Pena. I-, I don't think that's a very easy role to recast because Louis Guzman is so unique in what he does. I don't know. True. However, I think Michael Pena showed has shown definitely that he can do it. So yeah, I've got Michael Pena, and then for Montel, I have Donald Glover. That that would be an interesting. That would be some. <laughs> yeah, that'd be some fun yeah. banter back and forth between the two of them. And, and I could kind of see, I mean, depending on what he ends up doing, I could see Donald Glover being the next Don Cheadle in kind of where his career trajectory is going, too. So, All right, Zach, what do you got? Oh, so the, the biggest uh, qualifier for me was you had to have good banter, good relationships. So I went with The Rock and Kevin Hart because <laughs> they could steal the movie, and obviously we know their rapport. And I don't know who would play who. I think you'd have to do some finagling with that, but... Uh, I'd want to see those two guys in a surveillance truck drinking lemonade. How the hell is the Rock ever going to be an undercover agent? 
I don't think he blames Good question. As long as he doesn't tell any jokes, I mean, he'll be fine. <laughs> Alright. Would you like to hear a joke? Knock, knock. <laughs> That's the wrong yes. movie. Um, all right, who would Nicolas Cage play? Oh, I had a good one. It was uh, uh, Gen- yeah, General Landry, played by James Brolin. Because I think he, <laughs> oh, he's good at sorry. Okay, at these, <laughs> he's good at like the the the, the roles that have like, like they're kind of small that have like one liners and stuff. And seeing him as a general be pretty hilarious. Okay, I was going to go General you, Salazar. Yeah, that's what I was saying. I thought you were going to go with General Salazar. That's the obvious one. He's walking around with his cane and... Come with on. The Mexican drug, tar- drug cartel general, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, but that, that role seems like it was written for Danny Trejo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. A little bit. Oh, that's really funny. He'd have to exclaim at some point, F*** Mexico! Like he does in uh, Red Rock West. Whatever movie he's in. Red Red Rock Rest. Uh, or or he could have been uh, he could have also been uh, the role of David Jensen, the guy, random guy who owns the apartment that uh, that Caroline has crashed in. When okay, she's you, high. so you're talking about the guy that is is about to have sex with her because I I wasn't sure he were who you were describing. Yeah, the guy. So so the when Michael Douglas Michael knocks Douglas. down the door. Yeah, 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 yeah. That guy. He's like that guy get out you know he doesn't like yeah. kick his ass or anything he just kind of says get out he just says get out yeah yeah okay yeah that guy <laughs> uh the guy who for some reason Topher knew exactly where she was i was curious how did you find the answer to that question that he was <laughs> in was other steven soderbergh Unless movies you saw the okay somewhere like how did you go to every cast member all like 150 cast members <laughs> I was I, I thought about doing that. I'm like, this is gonna take way too long. So I just I, I googled uh, actors who have been in more than one Steven Soderbergh movie, and I found an article that someone wrote about it, and uh, just made sure they were in traffic when I when I wrote the question. And I was wow. like, then this random dude was on the list. I'm like, who the hell is he? And I was actually searching this while I was watching the movie, and so I'm like. His name is John, and like I haven't seen this guy yet. I don't, and then it's like, oh, that guy. Okay, okay, I know who we're talking about now. You should have said thought, you. you I spent mean, his name is twelve hours. His name is John, and it's never ever said. But Th- that would. You should have said you. You spent twelve hours looking up the answer to that question. Hours, I, I would, hours I, spent. Yeah, I, I would have. I would have maybe considered you for MVP of this movie. <laughs> yeah, he did that, <laughs> and, then, and then he was still like having to delay our podcast because he couldn't watch the movie in time. <laughs> that would have been the key. Yeah, yeah. I get the I answer to that the question. Movie maybe five so much minutes dedication. We started recording. <laughs> Dedication to the act of hosting uh, trivia. That would have been impressive. <laughs> All right. Uh, highest war performance. Uh, Zach, you're first. Okay, I'm just going to get... I didn't know really where to put this guy. Uh, I, I want to talk about him. Like I said, I, I think this movie's overrated. It didn't work for me. However, there was one performance that worked for me in this movie. And maybe he, he's my big Tim Award winner, but not really. I'm just going to go with him anyway. It is Miguel Ferrer as Eduardo Ruiz. He is really good in this movie. Um, I don't know too much about Miguel Ferrer, except I think he's the son of, of uh, Jose Ferrer, who won the Oscar for Cyrano. And um, he's, he's, uh, he's awesome. Yeah, yeah Clooney's Clooney's cousin. Cousin. He died a few years ago. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
Well, that's that's too bad. But he's he's awesome in this movie. Um, again, you know, you might think like middle aged, you know, uh, guy who runs a drug business, like probably easy to cast. But I think he's awesome. Like what, now, when I think about that role, I picture his face, and Loki. It's kind of hard to recast that role. Like maybe J.K. Simmons, but like I, I don't know. I think he's he's kind of awesome and sort of a hard role to recast. I'm glad we're talking about him because I wanted to make sure we talked about him at some point too. I really, I really like this this character. I really like this actor. Yeah, I agree. Um, he's he's been a couple years uh, playing uh, Owen Granger on NCIS Los Angeles, which is where I most knew him from, and he was actually in the middle of of that series when he died. Uh, he got cancer and uh, ended up passing away. But uh, yeah, I was watching like, hey, Granger's in this movie, and he's he's so good. He's so good, I, I so I I agree completely. He he deserves he deserves mention for sure, and uh, and yeah, he's he's George Clooney's cousin, which is kind of crazy because they both come from like old Hollywood royalty, that end up marrying each other. Uh, I'm gonna go next. Um, it might be the low hanging fruit. I don't know. Benicio del Toro, uh, partially because whenever Benicio del Toro takes on a role, it becomes like iconic, and you have trouble picturing anybody else doing that role because it's Benicio del Toro, and I think he does such an amazing job in this movie. I remember watching it the first time, thinking, "Why did he end up winning an Oscar?" And then this time, just completely blown away by what he brings to the table. Um, and the fact that the Oscars were willing to honor a performance like this, where you know seventy-five percent of his dialogue is in Spanish, um, I mean, it's it's rare that a a foreign language um, actor who's who does a movie almost entirely in another language ends up winning an Oscar, and yet Benicio del Toro was able to do it because he's Benicio del Toro. I mean, go back to Wolf Boy in Big Top Pee Wee or go back to Fenster in uh, in Usual Suspects. He steals the screen whenever he's in anything and uh, and this is no exception. So that's my pick. Todd, what do you got? Yeah, that's a good choice. I mean, I remember he was my, my number one actor of the 2000s. You gave me crap for it, but I mean, he, every movie he made at that time was, was like a it was like a landmark kind of performance. My... I gave you crap for it because you picked like a character actor <laughs> as the number one actor of the decade. Oh well, yeah, that's not true. Uh, so I'm going with Erica Christensen because I it, it was really hard to imagine anyone else playing that role. She has this like demeanor about her, this like this like stare, this like disinterested look, and this natural feeling of being too smart to be in the predicament. She played a very similar role in The Upset of Anger and The Perfect Score. It's not an easy character to play, and I think she is amazing, and Loki probably should have been nominated for it. And the, her scenes are the ones that stand out to me the most, like her NA monologue, her like uh, her overdose scene, or the, the, the guy's overdose scene, and uh, I mean, the, the scene where she gets caught, like th- these are the scenes that stick out to me the most in the movie, and it's because she is so good at that, and I, I don't know that anyone else actually gave her a good review or anything at the time, but I think she is probably, I mean, I, I think she gives the best performance in the movie. Is she related to Hayden Christensen? I'm trying to find it here. I don't think she is, but I feel like they look. But I feel like they look like they could be siblings, don't they? Maybe. Like they've got the same eyes. I don't know. Okay. Anyways, that, that was a complete aside there. Todd, I'm going back to you. Worst performance. So I said Topher Grace, 
I, I don't know if it's really a bad performance, because I don't think anyone really gives a bad performance. It's just that like you could replace him so easily. It could have been, at the time, it could have been, like, Wes Bentley. It could have been any actor in American Pie. I feel like they all could have done the exact same thing as Topher Grace. And I, so I, maybe it's just, like, Lois War. But uh, I, I think you're supposed to like the character, but he's so pretentious and annoying. And I think that's just Topher Grace doing his thing. Uh, but I don't really think that's what it maybe was supposed to be. I, I think I think I don't know I I know I don't like his character so maybe that's why I'm saying that but uh, yeah they're no bad performances. Yeah, Topher Grace always seems to just play Topher Grace in whatever he does. <laughs> like even when he's David Duke in Black Klansman, he's yeah, just he's Topher, Topher Grace. Grace and or yeah, when he's, he's still Topher Grace. Topher in Ocean's Eleven, getting lessons in poker. Oh yeah, yeah. That that you know that that's his most dynamic performance right there. Absolutely, real um, getting out of the box there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm gonna go worst performance. I'm gonna go with our uh, with our buddy from a big uh, from Pee Wee's Big Adventure. I'm going James Brolin, just because uh, honestly, every time I see James Brolin in anything, I'm always like, dude, you really just have one note, don't you? You're not a very good actor. <laughs> and uh, and this is the same thing of like, wow, you're playing like the same role you play in Catch Me If You Can. When you steal uh, Christopher Walken's wife, and uh, that, and even like look at Pee Wee's Big Adventure, he he's not that good in that movie either. So I mean, he doesn't really have any dynamic personality that comes out in anything he's ever done. So, uh, and this is no uh, no exception. So hey, James hey, Brolin, don't have you seen him in Pensacola Wings of Gold? Come on. Nope, I have not seen him in in whatever the hell you just said. <laughs> Anytime you have a show ripping off Jag, probably not going to be a real uh, Emmy Award uh, contender. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Zach, who's your worst oh, performance? Well, you know, there is a recurring theme on this podcast, which is that both of you are so wrong. Just about everything in the, that you said in the last five minutes. Um, first of all, Terry, James Brolin was my runner-up to highest war performance because I actually think his scene is awesome and he's really good in that role. Um, my worst performance goes to Erica Christensen, though. Um, I think she's terrible in this movie. She stares into space, and uh, she doesn't at all Scott, look like a legitimate, legitimate... Well, I mean, come on, can we get a little bit more like versatility? Like, Okay, com- compare this role to Jennifer Connelly in Requiem for a Dream. I mean, Jennifer Connelly goes through, you know, crazed emotions. And, you know, granted, okay, fine, maybe she's high, whatever. But, like, that is such a more intense role, and you feel for her as she... Yeah, you, you agonize for her as she goes through this uh, crazed desire to get high. Erica Christensen just seems like a teenager who's just experimenting. It never really seems like she's that addicted to it. And um, she just, I, I don't know, there's, there's, she's supposed to be the emo- emotional investment in the movie, and uh, it's not there. By the way, Terry, I think that you were thinking that Erica Christensen is related to Evan Rachel Wood, Carrie Russell, and Alicia Witt. Because they played her sisters in Upside of Anger. Well, there's that, too. Yeah, that Julia too? Stiles could have also played this role <laughs> as well. But she was too busy making Save the Last Dance, the number two movie of January 2001. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I actually thought about that too. That yeah, Julia Stiles and Erica Christensen are kind of interchangeable there. Uh, that's All right, it <laughs> uh, it is time. It is time for the amazing Larry Big Tim High Roller Award. <laughs> yes, um. <laughs> amazing Larry Big Tim High Roller. <laughs> just keeps getting this better with each episode. Getting, 
Yeah, this name's just going to keep getting Who from longer, traffic are we going to add to the name of this category? <laughs> Um, I wanted to say Ruiz, but we've already talked about him a little bit, and so I'm going to go with the other one that I have here, and that is, um, I gotta find him for his full name here. Uh, it's, uh, I think it's Francisco. Francisco Flores? Yeah. Uh, played by Clifton Collins Frankie Jr. Flowers. Um, I, I thought he was, he was a fascinating character, and I thought he gave a very dynamic performance in the little bit he was on screen of, uh, of being this assassin, yet also being this tortured you know, prisoner, and then coming out of it and having this vendetta out and uh, trying to, you know, trying to get back to what he's good at. And uh, no, I, I thought he was he was really good, and he stood out whenever he was on screen. So that's who I'm going with. Uh, Todd, who do you got? Uh, I said uh, General Arturo Salazar, because he's got this, like, awesome, sarcastic aura about him, but at the same time, he's also kind of intimidating. And I think he would have been a really cool character to have somewhere in Breaking Bad. Like, I mean, it's just from, the, like, the first time you see him when he's, like, making whatever that noise he's making as he's walking up to Javier's car. Like, from that moment on, like, I, want, I just wanted to watch more of that character, and he, he's, he's awesome. By the way, I just have to mention that I was watching this movie last night with my wife and five minutes into the movie, she's like, can we just turn this off and watch Breaking Bad? Because I feel that's like, that's what I'm watching. <laughs> it's like, what? And, and we're like, why did you put the drugs in food boxes? You should have just put them in the fry batter and it would have gone so much better. <laughs> well, conspiracy right. theory, the Obergon brothers became the Chicken Brothers. Oh... See, I was gonna say I was gonna say Benjamin Bratt is also like a like a low key, you know, favorite minor character because he should have played Esteban in the Kill Bill movie. But okay, <laughs> well, Esteban Vallejo is supposed to be eighty Michael years Parks old. Michael isn't Mexican either. Yeah, I mean, there's that. <laughs> All right, uh, Zach. Who's your uh, amazing Larry Big Tim High Roller? I mean, obviously it's Ruiz, but I have two others that I want to bring up. One is Vonte Sweet as uh, Dealer, and that is because basically he is the Big Tim of this movie. And like, I mean, oh my god, <laughs> totally is. <laughs> she has to have sex with a black guy to get drugs. Oh no. I mean, come on, let's get real. Like, let's get the, 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 the fragile white hysteria out of the way. That scene does not work at all. But basically, he is Big Tim. So that's kind of why I had to place him as a sort of um, honorary Big Tim Award winner. But if I'm really going Big Tim Award and I'm going, you know, deep on this one, I'm going to go, uh, oh, what's the actor's name? Shit, hold on. Uh, it, the actor's name is Lynn Strixma as the clown. And let me tell you why. <laughs> okay, so that that clown is showing up. I mean, if we're talking about Kill Bill Volume Two, it's he's a little like Bud in Kill Bill Volume Two. Like, like he has to show up to the fun zone even when no one is there. Like, like an asshole right here. Okay, he is putting in time for his work. Now, what's also funny about the clown is uh, if you watch the deleted scenes of this movie, he shows up again as the clown at the fun zone because there's a dele deleted scene in this movie where Catherine Zeta-Jones makes a drug deal 
with Frankie Flowers at the Fun Zone. As insane as that sounds, and guess who's there? The clown, Lenny Strykstra, Smizma, Schmerzma, and uh, he's awesome. He's he's definitely a big Tim Award winner. That is a great call. I gotta say, like like in the back of my head when he shows up, I'm like, wow, Miguel Ferrer really changed clothes very quickly. <laughs> Good point. Good call. <laughs> Well, they don't even shoot him, you know? Like, maybe they thought that he'd change club, but no, they they know better. No, instead, just instead they know that they can see his shoes sticking out of the ball pit. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, like, one of the best moments in the whole movie is when they shoot his, shoot his shoe and all of a sudden he comes screaming out of the ball pit. That was, that was great. I, another one that I got I to gotta just throw out there really quick because I just... I, I, as I was watching it, I thought about it, and then I forgot about it until just now. Um, that, um, what, what's his name? The guy I talked, the scorpion, magical, magical's wife or girl or whatever. I'm like, dude, that looks a whole lot like Selma Hayek. It totally well, is. it is Selma Hayek. Yeah. Which I didn't realize until I just saw that it actually oh, yeah, was. There and are so famous actors throw that all over there. this movie. I did not remember John Slattery was in this. I didn't even remember Stephen Bauer yeah. was oh, the yeah. husband. And Oscar nominee Amy Irving. Like, I was like, what the? Like, there's there's famous people all over this movie that I did not remember. I didn't even remember Albert Finney was in it. Yeah, I didn't either. But I, I think Selma Hayek is the one uncredited famous person that's in this movie. And uh, and I just saw her name. And I'm like, when, well, whenever uh, Selma Hayek's in a movie, it's worth it's I think worth she's got note. more lines than John Slattery so. does. I think you're right. <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget uh, right. James Pickens Jr., a.k.a. Chief Weber on Grey's Anatomy as Prosecutor Ben Williams. Okay. Uh, best scene. Zach, you're first. Okay, so I have two and a half scenes in this movie that I like. The rest of them, screw it. I didn't like this movie at all. It was very disappointing. One yeah, of the scenes well, you've already mentioned. from the guy who doesn't like well, Raging uh, Bull anymore, so okay, keep going. That's true. That's true. Okay, so <laughs> one of the scenes we already talked about, which was the Eduardo Ruiz scene where he says, um, what's the point? I mean, your partner died. You have to babysit me eating my breakfast. Like, that's a good scene. And I wish the movie had done more of that, which is ask kind of more existential questions about what's the purpose of drug enforcement if this whole system um, just fails, if it makes a marginal, if, if barely perceptible impact on the drug trade. Uh, that's a that's a sort of profound scene. And you kind of, Don Cheadle reacts like he's thinking, oh shit, you know, he's kind of got a point. I wish the movie had done more of that. So that's a good scene. Another scene that works, I think, is, again, screw you, Terry. I love the James Brolin scene. I think that's a great story story that was one of the few scenes of this movie that i remembered um prior to rewatching it last night that's a great story that's a great monologue he tells it in a great way now could detective pw herman have told that story in a better way maybe but i think james <laughs> brolin does the best that he can and then and then the half scene i'm going to give the movie half credit for that works is the scene where Topher Grace uh, basically tells uh, Michael Douglas in the car that there is a racial component to drugs. And he says, you know, if, if um, you know, the black people in, in the ghetto, you know, they can, they can make uh, money doing this. If white people could see that this could lead them to a profit, they'd be selling crack cocaine in the suburbs as well. And the reason I'm only giving that a half point instead of a full point is because as good a point as that makes and as good as a scene it is, the movie sort of dismisses it. And actually, 
in the original screenplay, uh, Michael Douglas says to him, will you shut up already? And I feel like that is such a flippant answer to what is a very legitimate uh, point made by the Topher Grace character, who might actually be the smartest character in this movie. So it's a good point. I wish the movie had made that point more often. Same with the Ruiz scene. I know we're only supposed to pick one scene, but those are the two and a half scenes that I like from this movie. That was actually what I was going to say was the worst like scene, scene, because like that is like, exactly the snobby rich kid bullshit that makes <laughs> that, that makes that character so... like. You, that makes you hate him so much and why he gives the worst performance and it, like that's a terrible scene i mean it, yeah he may make a point but at the same time he does it in a way that makes it so it's completely unbearable well that's what i mean i mean he, he he is the in that scene he's the voice of reason but the character is painted in such broad strokes that it really undermines the legitimacy of the points that he's making in the speech so I, I i agree with you like it shouldn't have come from the topher grace character but uh someone had to say it right because this movie doesn't talk about race at all except for that one little bit which it just kind of dismisses afterwards so i feel like that scene should have ended with uh topher grace getting punched in the face a la brad pitt and burn after reading after you think that's a schwinn <laughs> or robert forster punching the guy i, I, I in feel the like it's kind of yeah i'm gonna punch you right now <laughs> bam <laughs> i i felt like it, it it deserved a sucker punch to end that scene just because yes i agree with zach that there's somewhat of a point being made but i also agree with todd that uh, he was doing it in such a in such a you know snobby way that it deserved it deserved yeah. a punch yeah <laughs> it deserved That's a sucker fair. punch. That's fair. Um, I'll say my best scene. There's some really interesting ones in here. I would say probably the one I remember the most uh, before I watched it again was uh, was the uh, the swimming pool scene. And I didn't even remember the context of it, but then once I remembered the context of it and saw it again, I thought it was really cool how, you know, Benicio Del Toro, he's going to be a, like an informant, and he, it's him deciding whether or not he's going to be an informant. And to make sure he's safe, he decides we all need to strip down to our underwear and jump in a swimming pool. <laughs> I, I think that that was pretty, uh, that was a, a pretty smart move for him to do. And, uh... And I, I just, it was one of those moments that I just thought was funny. And I would also say the other the other scene that I thought was pretty pretty clever was when Catherine Zeta-Jones brings the lemonade to the guys in the van. I that, that is a pretty, good scene, too. I agree. I, I changed my vote. Three and a half good scenes. That's a good scene. I agree with you, Terry. The lemonade <laughs> scene is a good scene, even though it's been done in other movies. But that is a good scene, too. <laughs> and, and just the panic on their faces, like, she's... She's, yeah. she's standing outside the van. What are we well, supposed she, to do? <laughs> and she's like really calm when she talks to them. Like there's no there's no division. She's just like, hey, can you guys watch out for you know this crazed hitman who's going to kidnap my son? They're like, yeah, sure. That's a good scene. That scene actually does work. Yeah, yeah. And 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 then the uh, uh, we're going to get these glasses of lemonade analyzed by the lab before we do anything else. <laughs> that was pretty smart too. All right, Todd, what's your best scene? Uh, so I had a couple that I was thinking of. One, one was, we talked about it, was when they take down Ruiz. That, that's a great sequence, starting in the office and then running, like, jumping over the fence and then yeah, into the into the play area thing. But my other one is the... He told two jokes! He told two jokes! <laughs> exactly. You know, they're wet and wild, and then they take all your money. Um, then uh, the other one is 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 the the Viola Davis. That's like a scene that that's like a joke that Jack would tell in Sideways. I'm sorry. Keep, <laughs> keep going. Yeah, I agree. It was pretty good. <laughs> 
right, the Viola Davis scene as like the social worker or whatever, like that that scene is one of the ones that I remember the yeah, most. Uh, well, but before rewatching it, and, <laughs> and and that is just again like a great performance by Erica Christensen, just like doing that that thing where she just is she's so believable in that role, doing that and saying exactly what what she feels and it's a really unique thing like the things that she ends up saying are is really unique i don't think that most kids other than people that actually psychoanalyze themselves like a really smart kid would like would actually come like say those things when, when they ask you like what are you doing here you know like that is a great scene and and probably the best scene in the movie all right well todd i'm gonna come to you uh next right away uh biggest stick man and biggest douchebag Okay, well, the biggest stick man I said was uh, Francesco Flores because he oozes cool, and I think I mean if you if you didn't get kidnapped by Rodriguez, then he was gonna get some ass in that in that bar for sure. <laughs> and the biggest douchebag is his name is <laughs> up Bowman, who is the guy who overdoses, <laughs> which I mean kind of is kind of bad to call him a, 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 a douchebag, but like. His, his line, sarcastic or not, when he says, like, when I jerk off, I'm not just thinking about Caroline, I'm thinking about you with Caroline. I mean, that's just wrong, and that, that is, and he has that's that look on his face. Call. Like, he is a douchebag for sure. That's a, that's a, good that's call. a really good that, call. Yeah. Uh, Alright, I'll go next. My, uh, my biggest stick man is uh, Juan Obregón, played by Benjamin Bratt. I mean, if you're a drug lord like that, you know, in, in your prime, I mean, Salazar is like, on his, on his way out, but uh, but Obergon is like, you know, you know he's got to be a stick man there, and uh, trying trying to get uh, you 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 know Todd, you know that during all of this when uh, when General Salazar is 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 uh, trying to kick him out, you know there are several times where he waves his fist at the sky. Damn you, Salazar! That, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, anyways. So, uh, so he's my biggest stick man. <laughs> yes, it, it's it's rare that we get a quote Charlie's Angels, Matt LeBlanc, Charlie's Angels on this uh, on this podcast. Anyways, biggest douchebag. I I had I said it was a tie between uh, between Topher Grace and Dennis Quaid, because um, Topher just oozes douchebag, and Dennis Quaid. I mean, what he's trying to pull off that's pulled off or that's mentioned in the final scene is just ridiculous. And you see it coming from a mile away, and yeah, he—he—it's just like, of course, that—that's one of the reasons why it's like, okay, at, at least Dennis Quaid's playing a douchebag in this movie. That's—that's that's a good sign. So nice. <laughs> I don't know why I hate him so much, but I do. I really do. All right, Zach, what do you got? All right. Well, the obvious biggest stick man is is Porfilio Madrigal, but. For the sake of argument, I also want to throw out um, the art appraiser played by Laurent Chouar because he's French and he, uh, you know, uh, he's an art appraiser and maybe there's something sensual about art and drugs and being French. So, I don't know, he's probably getting it in with Catherine Zeta-Jones maybe in the back room. I don't know. And then um, for uh, Douchebag, um, my obvious pick was David Jensen as John. Um, 
even though I forgot who David Jensen was until Terry brought him up. Um, but I also want to go with Senator Orrin Hatch because, um, like, you know, he talks about, you know, rehabilitation and the need for reform on drugs. And, like, he was the big, one of the biggest Republican assholes in Congress who stuck up, fun- who, like, clogged funding for drug re- rehabilitation throughout the 90s and 2000s. So, yeah, screw you, Orrin Hatch, and your f- conservative Republican politics. And uh, he's, 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 a, he's a sleazeball. I will say my uh, my other douchebag. Uh, I can't find who uh, his name or who played him in here. I'm looking, but it's a uh, it's a guy who's like like uh, Michael Douglas's assistant. Oh, it's kind of yeah. following him around everywhere. Jeff. Yeah, yeah. He's he's a douchebag too. I think he's mainly a douchebag because he reminds me of uh of the ben schwartz character in space force because he's basically the same he looks just like him and he kind of has the same the same persona and personality and i hated that guy in that show so uh that's that's what i'm going with all right um anything any flaws anything outdated conspiracy theories (laughs) anything anybody wants to mention I, I don't i don't have anything else written down other than that i don't know how it did not get nominated for best cinematography yeah, that's a good call. I could see it. I could see it being the cinematography nom. Well, you know, this movie was shot by Peter Andrews, aka Steven Soderbergh, under a pseudonym, and um, I think this was maybe the they, first. They, maybe they were just like, "Screw you! We're not going to nominate you if you aren't going to take credit for your own work." Well, the Coen Brothers did that with their editing of No Country for All Men, and still they still won. Sure. Yeah, but that that was that was two thousand what seven and. This is this is two thousand. They had to nominate world. the Patriot instead. It was a different world. <laughs> it was a different world. Um, can I just say I thought the cinematography in this movie was terrible. I mean, maybe it was the DVD I was. Watching. I own the Criterion DVD from two thousand. So if, if I were to watch this movie on a four K remaster Blu Ray, maybe it would look better. But I thought it looked terrible. I thought this was one of the worst shot movies to ever be a serious Oscar contender. And um, Soderbergh later said in interviews that if he had been an actual cinematographer, he probably would have been fired from the set because of how he he messed up a lot of the shots. Um, I don't know what you guys think. I just, I, I hated the coloring. I hated the sepia and the tungsten tones. I thought it, it was overly obvious and it, it, like, it, it actually made the story even more confusing to follow. Do you guys know what did win cinematography that year? What women won? Probably Gladiator. No. No, Gladiator was nominated but did not win. It was uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Ah. Well, that's deserved. It'd be Gladiator, Malena, O Brother Where Art Thou, and The Patriot. You've actually and seen Malena. Art... Yeah, I have. O Brother Where Art Thou was in there because it was Roger Deakins, and then The Patriot was Caleb Deschanel. But, Terry, yeah. if you turn around right now, it's the scene that we were just talking about with... Uh... Topher giving his big speech. <laughs> it is. So, yeah, I, I have traffic on in the background. Topher's giving his douchebag speech right now, uh, showing of uh, why he is a white, privileged uh, teenager. Um, yeah. All right. <laughs> um, so I've got a conspiracy theory here. I think uh, Benicio Del Toro's character in this movie uh, goes on and becomes his character in Sicario. That's not a yep. that's not a bad call. I mean, I I feel like that's kind of low hanging fruit, but it it feels right. I mean, I'm sure Denny Villeneuve like actually thought that when he made Sicario. I mean, it's possible. 
That's probably why and he cast Benicio del Toro. Tijuana cop turned informant turned vigilante out to destroy the leaders of drug cartels. Because, I mean, doesn't he go after him because he killed his family? I mean, he would kill his family after he informed on them to the DEA. But his family died in the floods of 93, remember? At least his parents did. His parents did? Yeah. Exactly. That's what I'm going with. That, that's my that's my conspiracy theory. I had another one, but I forget what it was. <laughs> I had a conspiracy theory that Paul Rubens should have played Frankie Flowers. Okay. Paul Rubens should have played Ruiz. <laughs> Just because he was in Blow. Uh, like the next year. Oh yeah, it would have been like the same character as Blow. There you go. <laughs> Alright, uh... LVP MVP. Wait, wait. Can I say a few flaws? I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, sure. Go One ahead. One thing I really didn't like is I thought, um, okay, why didn't they establish that Topher and Erica Christensen were actually smoking or taking the drugs that were produced by the cartel? Like, even sort of, so in the deleted scenes, there's actually a scene where Michael Douglas sees the Scorpion logo on the drugs. That would have made it a lot more understandable the ways in which the stories are connected like one of the problems watching this movie is it feels that plot line with michael douglas feels very disconnected from the other two plot lines it doesn't really connect but having that the scorpion there would have would have made a lot more sense um, are you saying the scorpion should have been like the blue ice in breaking bad sure yeah like <laughs> <laughs> like the calling card the thing that makes it stand out from everything else Exactly, yeah. Like, okay, so I also just, I mean, overall, I felt like this movie is really disconnected. Like, there's no sense of urgency in this movie. I found it very plodding and boring. And so, like, I was thinking about, like, Babel. You know, Babel does a lot of the same things that this movie does. But the reason that Babel's a better movie is that there's an urgency to it because Kate Blanchett gets shot. And it's those nomadic kids in Morocco that shoot her. And it's like, who shot her? It's going to launch this international uh, war because this American tourist got shot. We need to solve this mystery. There's no sense of that in this movie. It's, like, so slow and it's so much about the bureaucracy of drugs it's not about the people that actually get impacted by it it's all about people in suits and elites and like the most the biggest victim in this movie is arguably Catherine zeta jones who literally has the line um you should see how the people at the bank look at me and like you know she's talking about the duck that she's eating and she's at the country club like give me a break i don't have a lot of sympathy for her i don't have a lot of sympathy for the wife that doesn't know about her her husband's business it's like the babe in the woods line in a in a goodfellow and then suddenly she shifts over to being this ice cold assassin like Sophia Loren or Sophia Coppola in Godfather Three. I mean, give me a break. That tra that that um, character metamorphosis to me was was unconvincing. I also thought that the world tour of the ch uh, uh, the checkpoints that Michael Douglas goes to was unconvincing. I thought that um, his big speech where he says, "I can't do this job anymore." All the reporters are taking pictures, yet he's able to walk outside the White House with no reporters going up to him. That's a bit extreme, like getting into the into the cab, and then. Uh, uh, I thought that I also, door should have been locked. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, how does he get out there? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> and then here's the big, here's the big, again, is it a flaw? I don't know. But it's just, it was so annoying watching it this time. Okay, so my I remembered that my favorite story in this movie was the Benicio del Toro story, but it didn't work this time because this movie is so intent on making him into this sacrificial lamb, this uh, archetype that reflects the disparity and the sacrifice that Mexicans have to make. He literally says all he wants is lights on the baseball field. 
that's all he wants in exchange for informing on, on the Scorpion. And it's like, okay, well, this guy makes also $300 a week. He's held at gunpoint multiple times and kidnapped during this movie. And the biggest career highlight of his drug bust is thwarted by the Scorpion. But all he wants is a baseball diamond and some lights for the city. I mean, give me a break. Is that realistic in any way? Like, I think that that scene is meant to generate, like, empathy and compassion for the character. But for me, it just came off as really flat. And again, showing this character as an archetype or a caricature rather than a, a full-bodied character. That's ridiculous. Oh, also, it's the same as the last scene in Sicario. Just going to throw that out there, too. So but, another movie yeah, that whatever. steals from this movie is what you're saying. I guess. I think Sicario I, I did it better. I don't agree with but... anything that you just said. Like, like you say, it's all about the bureaucracy and stuff. Like, Soderbergh, he has this quote where he says, like, there are three major social issues in this country that we struggle with. Education, poverty, and drugs, and we only ever talk about two of them. And that's that's why he made this movie. It's this isn't about making like a thriller about like the drug trade. It, it, I mean, it's it's about more about why it's a problem and about how it becomes a problem and what the effect is on everybody involved. It, I don't I don't think that's a flaw. I mean, in theory, it's not. I just think this movie's boring. I don't think there's any sense of urgency. Like, even arguably the most exciting sequence, which is the attempted assassination of Ruiz, that's exciting for a few minutes. But again, there's there's nothing propelling this story forward. It just sort of moves from one piece to another. Interestingly enough, the Criterion DVD has a lot of bonus scenes that were deleted. Believe it or not, the deleted scenes actually add a lot to the movie and actually connect the stories in a better way. And I almost wish that they had been put in the movie instead of the scenes of Michael Douglas taking the tours of the checkpoints around the country, which add nothing to the movie. And some of those really long protracted dissolves also just take up a lot of time. And so um, there's some good deleted scenes about how Catherine Zeta-Jones actually does become more of a, um, you know, agitated uh, badass. And that's never like, how does she know about the dolls in this movie? That is never established. And there's a deleted scene that establishes that. So I feel like this movie won for best editing kind of bad editing these are scenes that should have been there to actually make the story a little bit more coherent is that your favorite scene is on right now oh that's true also can i talk about my favorite dvd <laughs> feature real fast on the dvd absolutely the cri- cri- okay so my favorite dvd feature on, on the traffic criterion dvd is they have uh trading cards of all the dogs that sniff for drugs literally there's like a hundred dogs that that were actual dogs in this canine um service at the border that sniff for dogs and they like go through their stats like like um you know buddy sniffed uh 1200 pounds of marijuana at the border and and, uh, and 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 then they even have like rookie cards for the rookie German shepherds that haven't made a drug bust yet. But um, I love it. That you know, God bless the Criterion Collection. Okay, I, I I have a flaw here. I'm I'm watching this scene here. How did Ruiz die in this scene? Because Poisoning. okay, I I know, but he ate like one bite and <laughs> spit half of it out because he said it tasted like crap. And and that and yet one like half of a bite that actually made it down into his stomach kills him? I I don't know. That must have been some strong poisoning if, if half a bite in an entire meal is able to, to kill him instantly like that. So um one thing that you mentioned, um you mentioned it won editing. So it was nominated for five Oscars. It won four. The only one it didn't win was picture. It won for supporting actor, director uh, adapted screenplay, uh, cause it was based on a miniseries and, uh, editing. 
and then it was nominated for picture. Should this have won best picture? Like, I mean, not not saying I obviously Zach, you don't think it it should have won because you don't necessarily think it holds up, but looking at the the resume it had in the 2000 Oscars, was this the movie that should have won Best Picture instead of Gladiator? Well, I don't know how many movies have won Best Director and Best Editing, but didn't win Best Picture. That, I mean, that's pretty ridiculous. And Screenplay. Director, Screenplay, Editing. I mean, I think I have With Crouching Tiger ranked win. higher than, than Traffic, but, I mean, Traffic probably statistically was should have been a lock at that point. When, it, when they were announcing Best Picture, it probably should have been a lock to win. Yeah, my theory is that this this came right on the heels of the 2000 election, and I think Oscar voters were tired of politics, and they and they were tired of the real world, so they wanted escapist entertainment like Russell Crowe in a gladiator outfit. Crouching Tiger should have won, and uh, I think 20 years later, it, it would have won. Yeah, I think that's the one that stood the test of time the best. Uh, gladiator was nominated for original screenplay, but did not win because Almost Famous won. Um, Gladiator won some text and it won actor. Yeah, I, I mean, it, you look at resumes, I, I think it's safe to say that Crouching Tiger is probably remembered as the best movie. And then you look at resume, I think Traffic had the better resume going into the best picture announcement than Gladiator. So it's, it's interesting that that's the, that's the one that ended up winning. It was kind of a weak year, though. I mean, my favorite movie that year is You Can Count On Me, which didn't get a Best Picture nomination, but Laura Linney should have won, and I think we're all agreed that that's a really good movie. Yeah. That movie, yeah. that year was a really top-heavy I mean, year. I mean, there are not a lot of really great movies, but there are, there are like, the ones that are great are really, really great. That's the way I've always looked at it. The, the Best Picture nominees, it was Gladiator 1, then it, you had Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon... Aaron Brockovich, which was a Soderbergh movie. Traffic, which was a Soderbergh movie. And then you had Chocolate with Johnny Depp. So, And Almost Famous. Those were, those were your five. Or Requiem for Yeah, a that's kind of ridiculous. Well, hey, you know, yeah. this, is the, this is the era of Miramax, man. Yeah. Chocolate. It's true. Better than those movies. I'm All right, sure. LVP, MVP. Let's wrap this up. LVP, MVP. Zach, you're first. Okay, so my LVP for this movie is Steven Soderbergh because as much as I um, really like him as a director overall, he my LVP is, I guess, Steven Soderbergh as the cinematographer because I think the cinematography in this movie leaves um, a lot, uh, how should we say, to be desired um, because it just kind of sucks. And my MVP for this movie is the Criterion Collection because I think they actually put together a really good package for their DVD Blu-ray. I don't own the Blu-ray. I, I think this movie probably looks better with its restoration, but I gotta say, this is an awesome DVD that also has a feature where you can go to the scene with the Senators and use the angle button on your DVD uh, controller, which I don't think you, you can ever use in any other DVD, and control the angle that you're watching. How awesome is that? That's pretty cool. All right, I'll go next. Uh, my LVP is the casting director that put all of the uh, mega stars in random roles because I think in a movie like this, that's almost distracting of having like James Brolin in a random one scene thing and John Slattery. I mean, John Slattery wasn't really anything at this point, but you, you look back on it and you see, and you see Albert Finney, you see James Brolin, you see John Slattery, you see Viola Davis in these tiny little bit parts. 
And usually you see that in like these big budget, you know, star-studded movies. And yet you have this like, this, you know, multi-plot, you know, drug trafficking drama that has all these all these star-studded people in it. It kind of distracts from it. So I'm going to say that's my uh, that's my LVP is a casting director that did that. Um, or you can't MVP, make <laughs> I don't know. I didn't look it up. <laughs> I just came up with that kind of on the spot. Let me see here. Casted Deborah Zane. Deborah Zane was a casting director. That's who I'm going with as my LVP. Uh, MVP. I don't know. <laughs> uh, MVP. I'm going to go. Um, I don't know. I'll go Benicio Del Toro. He's awesome in this movie. I just I, I just love Benicio Del Toro. And this is what showed everyone what he could be. So. That's what I'm going with. He was my highest war and my MVP. I don't care if it's cheating. Todd, how about you? Uh, LVP is Dennis Quaid because I feel like he's always the LVP in every movie he's in except <laughs> yeah. for Far From Heaven. Uh, he's always the least interesting, least dynamic character, and uh, that's because he, he is not a good actor. Uh, and my MVP, I literally <laughs> have two things written down. Steven Soderbergh's cinematography and Steven Marone, the editor. So I'm going to go with... <laughs> I'm going with the editor... And this guy is the editor of movies such as you guys have talked about, uh, ba- Babel, and he, he's the editor for basically all of Inyaratu's movies, and he's all of Clooney's movies and all of Soderbergh's movies, and he puts this movie together in a way that, yeah, it may not be urgent, but it, it, it does jumble a lot of stories, and it does tell them in a coherent manner, and it is, it, I don't know, it, it's, it's some of the best editing I, I, of, of the 2000s, and, uh, I think it is that is the reason why it is great, and because Soderbergh makes the movie so much different because of how it makes it look. This is the only movie where the deleted scenes are better than the scenes I'm in curious, the movie. Are there deleted scenes for this movie? Because I don't know that that's been mentioned more than ten times yet. <laughs> I mean, holy shit, Zach. How many times are you going to bring up... Like, Criterion released this, if I'm not mistaken, right? <laughs> Point taken. <laughs> All right, it's time for quote of the day. Strawberries. Not the cheese. Womack. With a little sex in it. Quote of the day. Uh, I'm going to go first. I have I have two quotes here. I came up with, uh, with one beforehand, and I came up with one while we were talking. So the one I came up fr- with uh, beforehand, I feel like uh, describes this podcast. Uh, it's from Alice in Wonderland. And uh, the Mad Hatter is talking to to Alice and says, have I gone mad? And Alice says, I'm afraid so. You're entirely bonkers, but I tell you a secret. All the best people are. And I feel like that describes this podcast. We're all completely insane. But, you know, all the best people are insane. And then the one I came up with while we were talking, um, as I'm sitting here watching Traffic back again while we talk about Traffic, uh, is a quote from Almost Famous. It's a, an exchange between Lester Bangs and William Miller. And Lester Bangs asks William Miller, what are you listening to? And he says, Stillwater. And Lester Bangs goes, Stillwater? Kids on drugs. <laughs> that is great. And I felt like that was appropriate for the current conversation. All right, Zach, you're next. Okay, uh, first of all, I, I think you should always have the movie that we're talking about playing in your background because I like watching it some when, when you move a little over. It's actually really entertaining. Yeah, it's a good idea. Um, okay, so so my quote comes from Stephen Dennis Soderbergh. Dennis Quaid's about to get sleazeballed out right here, by the way. There we go. 
Yeah. A, a, my quote comes from Soderbergh's best director acceptance speech, which I actually thought was a really good acceptance speech. He says, I want to thank anyone who spends a part of their day creating. I don't care if it's a book, a film, a painting, a dance, a piece of theater, a piece of music. Anyone who spends a part of their day sharing their experience with us, I think this world would be unlivable without art, and I thank you. And that's a great acceptance speech, and I'm shitting on traffic, I know, but he's actually a really good director, and so, you know, check out his, his work. All right. Todd, what do you got? Uh... This is a quote from Benicio del Toro, uh, like in real life. He says, "I'm not Jack Nicholson. I'm not. I'm not Brando, but I do mumble," and that that describes <laughs> us as well as Benicio del Toro really well. I feel like. <laughs> uh, I love Benicio del Toro. He he's amazing. Do you know and that, that he just had proves he learned Spanish for this movie? Did you see that? He didn't know Spanish no. until until he took the role for this movie. Which is awesome. That's amazing. Yeah. All right. Well, with that, we're going to bring this podcast to a close. Thank you guys so much for listening. Make sure you check us out on uh, iTunes, on Stitcher, Spotify, Pandora. Uh, We'll catch you next time. Uh, Make sure you check out Daily Notes, which is coming out uh, about weekly right now. Um, Adam just had a really interesting conversation with uh, the uh, host of the Durbania film uh, uh, YouTube channel. Um, it was a, it was a really cool conversation. Uh, so make sure you check that out. We'll catch you next week with another episode until then have fun watching movies and we'll catch you on the flip side. Despite your crass behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together.